Pop hat. Let's go. Let's kick right. it. Yo, let's kick it. What's kick up, it. everybody? Welcome to the Where It Went podcast, where we are discussing the Revelation Records discography in chronological order. We got a really cool episode this time. Um, we're going to keep it a little bit secret until the interview starts. That's a mystery. You got to have a little bit of mystery in life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, they can on? see on, they'll see on the logo. So yeah, just, that's true. Yeah. But maybe, maybe if they don't, maybe if they don't know how to read, I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe if they don't follow us on any um, social media, which is weird. There you go. Or they should. Um, they should just follow us on Instagram. We have face, yeah. Facebook, um, Twitter, Discord. You have access to our Discord channel if you are a patron, which you can become by going to www.whereitwentpodcast.com. Uh, we're pretty active in the Discord. I try to I try to talk in there every day. And you know what I've been doing a lot lately is dropping Mediafire links to like yes. weird and rare stuff. Yes, you have um, live stuff. I have I have this like crazy you know collection of live stuff, demos, bootlegs, and um, I'll, I'll just go into. I uploaded something into Mediafire the other day, and then I went through it, and I was like, oh shit, some of these people might enjoy this. So I just decided to. Share it with it really, you know? it reminds me of like the Discord community that we have reminds me of like the old message board days, like yeah, the Rev sure. board. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, but but no drama. No drama, just, yeah. It, there's literally zero drama. It's just people enjoying, commenting about the podcast, commenting about the releases. So yeah, if you want to join, hit it up. We had a lot of people asking us about, um, you know, now people are seeing the shirts that we sent out uh-huh. for patrons, the yeah. uh, Mickey Mouse bold yeah. uh, that was from the Good and Plenty fanzine. Mm-hmm. And um, I always tell people, I'm like, we gave it to, you know, our top tier patrons and we plan on doing something like that every year. Yeah. So definitely get into it. Which speaking of, of shirts, can we bring up since this will air while they're still on sale? The yeah, a shirt? couple of days. So if you go to contrabandgoods.com, you can pre-order a shirt featuring the artwork from the Embrace shirt that Porcel was wearing on the insert of the Youth of Today self-titled 7-inch. Um, it was designed by Alex Brown. He printed a few, uh, gave them to Porcel. The shirt that Porcel is wearing in that photo ended up in the collection of, who was it, Greg? Our dear friend, Tim McMahon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and who got it from another friend, uh, Lenny Zimkis, uh-huh. another, another buddy of mine. Great friend of the pod. Great guys, yeah. So um, we just figured, why not replicate the shirt? But Right, so be- we wanted the shirt just for us, yeah, like just to wear. Like we're just going to make a couple. And then we started talking and we're like, well, what if we made these, sold them, and then donated all of the money to a charity in the name of Alex Brown? So that's what's going to happen. So this is not... You know, we're not uh, just bootlegging a shirt for fun to keep the extra money. We're like actually donating all of the money to a very specific charity. I, I uh, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think we've been given the name of the charity yet. But we'll post it when we get it. It's all legit. It's through the family of Alex Brown, and um, yeah, yeah, like Por- Porcel and Sam uh, both signed off on it. Yeah, um, they're they're into the idea, and. Uh, so if you're interested, by the time this airs, you have a, maybe two more days. Couple days, yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's coming down on January 15th. Yeah, you can go on to the Where It Went Instagram to check out uh, 
you know, information on where to order that and follow the pull, pull the strings, pull the yarn and the sweater will unravel. I don't know what I'm saying right now. Hey, yeah. Greg, we got a couple of sponsors for this episode, right? Is that yeah, what we're calling but, them? Sponsors? Yeah, but isn't it yeah, time to... So, um, bit of bow to one of this episode's sponsors, our friends at War Records, um, which we talked about before when we played that uh, terror song a couple episodes back. Um, so, War Records, uh, it's run by our, our buddy Andrew Klein from Strife. Listen, I don't know if you knew this about me. I'm a huge Strife fan. I... Oh fucking love strife when i was a kid and i'm talking like 17 18 19 strife was like the biggest hardcore band here in california i saw strife i mean imagine in 95 you go to a show at an old theater in hollywood and there's like hundreds of kids there like they were fucking top tier and you know what since they kind of I don't want to say came back with Witness a Rebirth. Um, that record's, by the way, that's yo, a really great reunion record. That not- record and then the EP that came out after are so fucking good. And every time they play, they bring it. They got good energy. They sound good. They're fucking like, they're just, I love Strife. I just want to throw it out there. So I was, as I was Sorry saying. hijack. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Strife too. And, uh, you know, they're one of the few that did pull off a good reunion record. Like I always think about that, um, that reunion LP from Cod now it was like t- almost 10 years ago. Um, and it's awesome. I think they even had uh, Igor Cavalera drum on it. That's like, correct. I mean, come on. It doesn't really get cooler than that. Right. Yeah. But anyway, had a, a long, a long history with the Cavalera. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, war records, um, and Andrew also plays to give it a rev connection uh, in World Be Free, mm-hmm. who put out a great new uh, EP uh, at the end of last year. Um, and also sings for uh, a band called Birth Old City. Birth Old City, which as we've we talked talk about, about that on this, font all we the talk time. about the font on the <laughs> podcast. I talk about my dude, Dave Ito, who plays guitar in Birth Old City. I, there's, just, there's a lot Dennis, of connections there. My old, my old friend, Dennis. Yep. I've known him for like two decades. Great. Mm-hmm. Great guy. So yeah, anyway, War Records. Um, they got some cool stuff out now as well as some cool things in the pipeline. So I wanted to take a minute and just talk about a couple of them. One of which is I love fanzines, like print fanzines. If someone does a zine and it's available in print, I'm buying it. Mm. It's just it's the way it goes, especially now when there's kind of a shortage of them. And they... Uh, War Records, uh, there's a zine called Pressure Drop. They have their second issue is out now. It's been out for a couple months. Um, and it's done by Andrew, another friend of the pod, Scott Vogel, and also uh, Patrick Kitzel from uh, Reaper Records mm-hmm. and the incredibly underrated band True Blue. So the newest itch issue features a bunch of interviews, interviews with Conviction, uh, Magnitude, Change, Bidipo to Aram yeah, and Chris, uh, Hoya from Madball, uh, Vinny Paz of Jedi Mind Tricks, mm. um, Carrie Housen, Frank Novanek from mm. uh, Hatebreed and Three fucking 
Frank Ring Friedgren. Worm. Yeah. yeah. Ringworm. Also played on. And in um, Terror. He was in Terror, too. Also played on Humanity is the Devil. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, he's got a, a good, a great resume. Mm-hmm. Um, Guav. Mm. Everyone knows Guav. Bit right? Guav. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, to tie it to the pot, a great interview, which did come in handy for research, especially in the beginning, an interview with Revelation Records owner, Jordan Cooper. Mm. So um, definitely check the zine out. It's super well done. Uh, it's, it's worth it. Um, and also, speaking of Berthold City, I figured I'd shout out their release. Their latest release is a, uh, it's a killer seven inch moment of truth. Um, it's right now in its second pressing. Uh, and on gold vinyl, crucial vinyl is cool. Crucial. And they have a new LP coming this year. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that. So if you want to check this stuff out and more, there's tons. And we'll talk about that again on, you know, another time. Uh, war, their website is war-rec.com. And if you use the code where it went in all caps, you get 10% off. Nice. And there's a ton of cool stuff there. Yeah. I have a Berthold City bucket hat. You know what? I, I as, as you were talking about that, I was like, I kind of want that Berthold City bucket hat. It looks good. It's awesome. They have yeah. shorts. I got to get the shorts. Yeah, I, you need I have Berthold to make City it suit, man. A complete suit because <laughs> I only have the bucket hat and the <laughs> long sleeve. Mm-hmm. So That's a suit still, right? I think it, that for now. I, I think that Berthold City should make a shirt in Berthold City font. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe I yeah. should maybe I should make bootleg shirts of the font and have it just say Berthold City. Yeah, but it's not for the band. Do it's like for the that. font. You could do the font like that. Um, the schism or the integrity letters. Uh huh. You could do one of those. Lzh dash one. So yeah. yeah, War Records and and like I said, Andrew's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm super psyched to you know get to talk to him and stuff. Uh, yeah. Great dude. So pick up awesome. that pick up that enforced LP. At the walls, second mm-hmm. press from Richmond. Oh yeah, RVA, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Out of three twenty-five, do it. Yo, when that demo came out, I was like, "This is sick. What is this?" And yeah. uh, Dwid also sang on an enforced song. Mm-hmm. And uh, right. yeah, they're fucking. They rip, man. They're good. Yeah, yeah. they do. Awesome. War records, man. Yeah, get into it. You know, uh, when we when we were talking about doing this podcast, we we had two different record labels in mind. Um, and we just flipped a coin and we landed on Revelation. But the other record label that we were thinking about doing a podcast about was Head to Wall Records. And um, they have a lathe cut six inch coming out by a band called Honeymoon um, that has a couple new songs. And we're actually going to preview. Preview? No. Uh, release. What's the word? Preview? Premiere. Debut. Yeah, premiere. We're gonna remember premiere. like 120 minutes and stuff. <laughs> yeah. or oh fuck! 120 we're the minutes. Premiere. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So we're going to premiere a song by Honeymoon at the end of this uh, episode. The track is called "Only in Name," and it's by a uh, Honeymoon who's from Northeast Ohio, which is an area that I'm not too familiar with. Is that where Xenia is? If anyone's a Gummo fan, you've heard of Xenia, Ohio, right? No, nobody, no Gummo fans here in the room. Uh, all right. No, well, no. but yeah, stay tuned all the way past the interview, all the way past the talking at the end of the episode. And we're going to play this new song by Honeymoon.
I want to give a quick bit of bow, speaking of head to wall, mm-hmm. to uh, Moon Kisser, another yep. band roster. Uh, my old buddy Gus is in it. They're freaking awesome. Yeah, they're good. Um, on head I have to, to get wall. my hands. Yeah, I have to get my hands on the vinyl. That reminds yeah, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will be my recorded reminder to myself to get the record <laughs> we'll holler at uh nate because nate who runs head to wall he's a, a friend of the pod he's a patron uh i've gigged with him before i've been you know friends with him on the internet for years and years and years uh so bit of bow to nate and head to wall records and um do we have anything else that we need to kick you got no, any uh you got any shout outs jason Jason's Let me just shout out his quick. entire friends list on Facebook. Yeah, geez. yeah. Did it, Bo, real quick. The Renee Hartfelt discography that six one three one put out is streaming. The streaming oh, I actually stuff got. I actually Friday. got an email from Spotify that Renee Hartfelt was streaming. Now, okay, that's right. how deep in it I am. Kick it. <laughs> Kick but, it. Uh, Great record. They, they cover yeah. world's fastest car acoustic, and that's streaming. So, yeah, fans of Walter, cover. check it out. Yeah, that's a good cover, too. Speaking yeah, of Walter covers, uh, I got into a wormhole this morning about quicksand covers. You know, there's the disembodied covering Dine Alone. I saw a video of Mental covering Omission. Oh, nice. And I think I, um, I, think I saw them. Is that Posi Numbers? Uh, I think 2004. Yeah. Pos- the Positive Numbers Festival. Okay. So listen, if you have any good... Uh, versions of quicksand covers that you have seen or you've heard drop us a line on instagram or in discord and uh let's go i know one too yo friend of the pod yo we were talking about earlier off off recording um balaram shakti Uh uh-huh he uh in out of body out of body at uh the set on this is hardcore 2017 oh yeah that was a good set man Uh they did um head to wall Mm -hmm. yeah i saw that I liked Out of Body, man. They Tidal. came here. They played yeah. here at, at program. It was it was good. So tie yeah. it up in a bow, head to wall. All right. Well, let's check the interview with our mystery guests, and uh, I don't know, kick it. To me, I think the quicksand story, at least as a, as a fan getting into it, you know, I, I didn't know quicksand in 1990, but by the time I did, Moondog was like a part of, of that story because, mm-hmm. you know, it was like going on at the same time as Gorilla Biscuits because the timeline, I feel like we talk about timelines a lot, especially mm-hmm. in these last couple, was always confusing because it's like Youth of Today 7-inch comes out in 1990, Gorilla Biscuits LPs, you know, 89 moon dog was what 89 but then this is 1990 but gorilla biscuits didn't break up till 1992 so you were doing a lot of things at once yeah you were busy man yeah and it was all over overlapping and um and uh 
Yeah, I guess looking back on it, it's, uh, I remember my friend uh, Ned from Title Fight when, it, when I was working on their record was so into all the Revelation stuff and um, him telling me, you know, me just kind of connecting with someone that was so much younger than me that was like into all because like we get it all at one in one thing. And, uh, you know, so, so we're trying to work out these timelines and the progression between this thing and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, there was so much going on and, and, uh, and so many different people that had kind of, uh, gelled from the hardcore scene at CBGB's and, uh, how that kind of stretched over into, uh, ABC No Rio mm-hmm. and, uh, kind of everyone in our generation, uh you know turning 20 getting their own apartments going to college smoking pot all these kind of things like happened and and kind of broke everybody out in different directions where everyone was so kind of tight in in their thinking at, at one time you know and uh and so that's why it's a really cool time you just see so many people who have a certain common commonality like they liked you know they had seen the Cro-Mags and Bad Brains and, you know, Youth Today or, you know, uh, you know, all these kind of seminal bands and had, um, you know, been so kind of like focused on this, this kind of scene for a short, very, very intense period of time, like a couple of summers, basically. And then all of a sudden, it's like people's lives are changing. You know, they're, like I said, going to college or getting a job or, you know, discovering some new clique of friends or a new group of, you know, some kind of new music genre that they were into. So I think it's just like so much, um, yeah, overlap. And, uh, you know, is, and I think it made for an interesting, uh, period of, of music and, and progression that was, uh, luckily documented on, uh, on revelation. Yeah. We call this the college years a lot. And, yeah. and I've said before that, I th- I always thought that the college year started with after burn after the burn seven inch, but we recently established that the college year started with shelter perfection of desire because that's really the turning point of experimentation, things getting a little weird, um, musicianship getting a little bit deeper, and I think that the quicksand seven inch is really, really pivotal to all of that stuff because it really is weirder than anything else that came out on revelation beforehand. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean that, I mean that in a great way. Like it's probably the first appearance of a trumpet on revelation records. (laughs) No. Oh, besides, I mean, well, the sampled trumpets on uh, start today, but the first actual trumpet. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it just seems from as a fan, what an exciting time because of all these new, like, you know, burn, uh, quicksand, even inside out, even though that was West coast, uh, you know, shelter starting to pop, super touch into another. Like we talked at another point in the episode about how I've been doing a lot of reading about DC hardcore lately, just going down a rabbit hole. And like, this is almost like uh, the revolution summer of of New York. Like all these bands are like how there was the rights of spring and embrace Mm -hmm. 
and Beefeater. And none of these bands are really sounded alike, but they were taking hardcore and like pushing it to a new level. Um, yeah. What were you got, like, what was for, for writing, you know, this record, like what was the kind of stuff that you guys were taking influence from? Cause it, it doesn't sound like your standard, you know, fast, hardcore. I always thought, was there a little bit of Bad Brains Eye Against Eye, like with some of the groove? Like, did that play any part? Um, just curious. I think, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, Alan, pro, uh, I think was, I mean, we were all Bad Brains fans. I think um, they were, Bad Brains, especially Eye Against Eye, definitely represented or uh, showed how you might be able to um, straddle like the hardcore kind of background into um, more progressive kind of musicianship and, and, you know, uh, although they didn't get really famous, you know, in a pop kind of sense, the record just sounded like could be played on WPLJ or something, you know, it just sounded like huge yeah. and the musicianship was like so um, good um and interesting and drawing from drawing from influences that um you know i didn't know who who maharishni vishnu orchestra was at that time i didn't know the sources that they were they were drawing from so i think that was pretty inspirational but i mean for me something that just struck me that um like me and alan lived uh, our first apartments out of high school we me and alan lived together and uh and Alan turned me on to Jane's Addiction, who at that time were this kind of on this independent record label in California. They were not like famous, um, although they were like, you know, very, very well known. I mean, bands like at that time, bands that could be like really cool musically and still be like really popular, but not like popular, popular was a kind of special zone. Um, and Jane's Addiction were kind of in there, as were the Pixies, for example, would have been the biggest one. But, um, you know, going from just only listening to hardcore with, you know, Bad Brains and Fugazi being the kind of the most interesting kind of big bands, um, you know, we were reaching out into, into other stuff. And I, I sp specifically remember you, Alan, like turning, playing uh, Jane's Addiction for me for the first time and just thinking like, there's some sort of thread to, to what we're, where we come from and what we're doing to them. And they're doing something bigger and rock, but in a way that's like very unique and, and interesting. As I remember, I think like for me, it was like we, I think everybody that at that time, there was, we, we were looking to do something, you know, like a little different than what we'd been playing before and with other bands and explore new things. And I think we looked to like, other bands or other people had similar backgrounds, but were doing something outside of what they had done before. So I'm mean, actually that I remember get, hearing James Addiction for the first time. Mark Ryan had made me a cassette tape because I wanted the new Scream record, and he said, "No, it's right. It's it's really it's different from what they've done before." And I, I, I barely remember. I think it's a record that Dave Grohl played on. No more censorship, probably right. Yeah, and it had, like great, the drums were like, they stood out then. Like, it was like, oh, this guy's a fantastic drummer. And I remember thinking like, yeah, I can't wait to hear that record. And he's like, check out the other side though. I put this band on for you. And I, I listened to the Scream record. I thought it was great. 
And I, I, they were kind of doing a similar thing at the time, like what, you know, we want to do something, you know, something different, but we remain true to the kind of where we came from. But I remember turning it over and I wound up just wearing out the Jane's Addiction side because it's just such a great record, you know. Is that the first record that's like just Triple called... X, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I am a huge Jane's Addiction fan. And so it's really cool to hear you guys both say that that was, I never made that connection before. Nothing shocking. I remember seeing the video for Stop when it first came out and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, these guys are so fucking crazy. And, you know, growing up in Southern California in the early 90s, I was always told that Jane's Addiction and Primus had the two hardest mosh pits. Like it was scary as fuck. You didn't want to go near a Jane's Addiction mosh pit, which is so crazy because if you listen to those records, it's like, this isn't like mosh music, but you know, it was so experimental back then in terms of musicianship, crowd participation, like all of this stuff was new basically. Yeah. And um, I remember Embrace, like definitely DC bands doing, you know, like Embrace. And there was just even like new bands, like Soulside and stuff. And I just remember thinking like, that's cool. They're doing their own thing. And they're, you know, they're kind of like breaking out of a mold. Yeah, even like seven seconds, you know, in the in the early 90s. They yeah, I kind of like that U2, like when they started to do the U2 thing. I thought it was <laughs> cool. Our, ourselves yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, weird. Yeah, we toured with them at that time. They mm. brought us out on tour to... Yeah. Uh, on that record and yep. uh, ourselves, I think we went on with them in Europe and, and in the United States. And oh, so oh, uh, nice. that was really cool. And we definitely had an eye always to, uh, to DC, especially what was, what was Ian McKay doing in a way, because yeah. he, he, he was such a kind of uh, touchstone for anything hardcore and, uh, and, and kind of making it, giving people in a way permission to, do something outside of that kind of strict formula or that strict um, idea of the emotional range of what a hardcore singer could right. do, which I think early on was basically like, you know, kind of yell without melody on maybe four or five different subjects. Now, I remember and for then, me, that was you, you being able to sing. I was like, cause you, I remember living together, hearing you sing like, you know, whatever the birthday song or you're putting on like sugar cubes records and singing mm -hmm. in key, you know, mm -hmm. with a guitar in your room. And I'm just thinking like, Oh shit, he can sing. Like he can really <laughs> sing. We should like, I just thought we were doing this because nobody could sing. Like if we actually have somebody who can sing, like the, it's much, it's a much wider palette that you can draw from, you know? And I remember yeah, but, like, I mean at the time kind of hearing, like also being like kind of, hearing like, I don't know, Joy Division and bands like that for the first time and, uh, you know, kind of like getting more into like Wire or, uh, or Gang of Four, like the bands that were kind of like, kind of like I'd overlooked because as a young, like younger, I, I, I didn't think there was punk. Yeah, post-punk. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, like, we, we're all, we've all was like, oh, these are the best bands, you know? Yeah. Like, doing the most musical stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Alan, how did you then link up with Walter for this project of quicksand. I mean, you said, you know, you knew that he had this talent for singing. I think what I just was got it? lucky the way, the way I remember it. I remember seeing like, I mean, I think of Moondog is kind of actually just quicksand with a different name. Mm -hmm. it, Cause right. It was, I, I saw you guys, I think I saw Moondog play a show at ABC No Rio and Sammy was playing 
And uh, right, Walter, it was it was you and Sammy and Sergio and Tom, right? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as very distinct in this regard that Moondog kind of spun off from just doing the GB stuff and just being like, okay, maybe I should just sing, you know, and see where that goes and do something different musically from GB, like kind of, you know, mm -hmm. the, the things that we're talking about, like explore those other um, interests in a way, in a, in a kind of environment that being the guitar player of Gorilla Biscuits, whatever, no one's really gonna care or judge too harshly what I do. Um, and then we played a couple of shows, one at CB's and one at, uh, at, at, uh, at ABC No Rio where yeah, I was maybe Byrne played that day. I don't know who played it, but I was definitely there. And I remember seeing you guys and thinking, uh, like, I want to do that. Like that, yeah. that I want to be doing different music. Like I felt like, you know, I was doing Burn, and I thought like, this is, you know, it was definitely not just straight up, you know, hardcore. Yeah, it was cool. Challenging and all this stuff. It felt good. But I, I just, I wanted to do something that like, I felt like there were no kind of like, uh, you know, limitations to what, where you could take it. And what maybe it wasn't, the, you know, maybe it really wasn't the, actually the same, but I remember seeing it and just thinking, oh, that's, that, that's got all the elements of what, what I would want to do. Uh, that I would say that it yeah. wasn't quicksand until you joined. <laughs> that's uh, that's nice. That's flattering. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, the elements of like, the element of like, this can go, this has everything you'd need to, in my mind, make a really, really good band that I want to be in. Mm -hmm. And just be like, oh, so, you know, Sammy, that lucky dog. And then I think mm -hmm. Sammy, like he wound up, I guess, you know, at that time, I, I felt the same thing happened with me with Burn. is like because of touring and stuff, you really couldn't maintain being in two bands. Like the other band, whichever band wasn't getting enough time out of you was going to get pissed and you were going to get tossed anyway. So you kind of had to declare and pick a band because, you, you know, you're going to dedicate most of your time to it. And it was, you know, that, that I remember, I think Sam, Tom came in and said, oh, Sammy's doing Judge, was it? Or Yeah, I think the Judge guys or Purcell was annoyed at Sam for doing this new project. And right, uh, so he got forced to declare. So he reeled them back like, in. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do, like, I definitely want to do it. Like Tom asked me, I was like, definitely, 100%. Like I saw the band one time and after like half a song, I thought I would love to do that band. And then... Uh, yeah, I got put in the same position. Like a couple of months later, the burn guys are like, what do you mean you're going away again? You know, like, mm. and I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. You know, it's what, what I want to do. So yeah, it was a weird time. It was, it was very tribal back then. Like you had to kind of like pick your, uh, pick your thing. Otherwise you were kind of interfering with, uh, with the other band doing, you know, being fully functioning. I think it, de it depends on the chemistry of, of the different groups. I mean, it was interesting that, um, when we're talking about all these different overlaps, especially from my experience, or maybe just no one cared that much about me, <laughs> that I was doing all these different bands and no one felt like, you know, super possessive about it. But I think when you're in a band, especially at that time, it's like everything is so about that band. So if you see your other guy, you know, I guess it's just, you know, it's, it's a natural reaction. But I, I think in this case, um, we, I knew, knew Alan's drumming, I mean, from beyond and, and, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, there was just something, I mean, I don't know. I, I could just say just, I'm a big fan. There was, Alan played in such a way that 
just like lifted the whole thing. It's, it's not just for like the, um, the power, cause there's a lot of hardcore drummers that would try to play with a lot of muscle. Um, Alan didn't really muscle as much as he just had a, a, a certain sort of finesse that would um, kind of set him apart. And I just thought, yeah, he was one of the pr premier players. And if you listen to Burn, I mean, I think the very first song starts with a fill. That's oh just yeah, like <laughs> sure does insane. Yeah. Like and you just never heard that before. Yeah. We we uh, recently sat and talked with uh, Kevin Egan from Beyond about the documentary um, mm -hmm. that just came out. What awaits mm -hmm. us? And uh, it it is kind of crazy. What a pivotal part that Beyond with the members played in this whole For sure. future of New York hardcore with. Tom and Alan and, and Vic with uh, Inside Out and then even Kevin doing stuff like 1.6 band. Like uh -huh. kind of crazy that those you four guys originally did like, just like out of high school did this band that had such a ripple effect on the rest of hardcore. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, they kind of came at a weird time. So their whole thing got poached out, but, um, but luckily, you know, from, from that, I mean, to me, Tom was the most exciting guitar player at that time. He just had such a, a cool technique and just uh, vibe and certain um, was bringing influences that some of them were pretty apparent, you know, like the kind of like Iron Maiden thing that he couldn't really, that you, you know, I wasn't a big Iron Maiden fan, but I knew that he was drawing from that, but he was also drawing from so many other sources. And I think, what Alan and you know what we we're talking kind of touching on is that we were in a scene where there was a certain um, touchstones and a formulaic kind of flourishes that you would use to you know signal like okay this is the mosh part but within the mosh part like how do you make that new and exciting and rewrite that idea and it's because we were drawing from different musical sources you know like I was listening to the sugar cubes or listening to Jane's addiction and that would filter into what, what we were doing. And I think, you know, and Tom was also listening to uh, a lot of cool music. Oh, always, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, let me interrupt, interrupt there because that, that's, a, I was like, so Tom's musical taste was so far out there for somebody into like hardcore, like mm -hmm. so far ahead of his time. Like I'm and like, I even think now every once in a while I'm getting into things now that I never got into. And I'm just like, son of a bitch, that's Tom again. Totally. <laughs> like, like, you know, he was really into Robert Fripp as a guitar player. And now I'm just like, oh, King Crimson were really unbelievably influential for a reason. And I'm going back yeah. and listening to these like 80s King Crimson records thinking like, these are amazing. You know, or things that I just thought were absolute noise at the time, like Throbbing Gristle. Yeah. Or, uh, he mm -hmm. was really into like Current 93 and Throbbing Gristle and a whole bunch of like, you know, industrial stuff that nobody else I knew was into. And it, to be honest, I kind of at the time thought he was just, it was just like a, an airy. Listening to be a dick. Yeah. Be weird to be a dick in the band. Yeah, you know, totally. like, turn 93, no. And now I like hear some shit, of this dude. stuff. And I'm like, no, this is where he, he really loved it. And he was pulling like the most essentially cool things or, or not, I mean, there was a lot of cool things about a lot of those bands, but he was pulling things that you could then adapt and use it in, you know, what we were doing. And I think that's yeah. kind of cool. Like, 
as a guitar player. Yeah, that was one of the fun parts, I think, about the documentary again was seeing the influence of Tom and how like all those different styles, like you said, like the Iron Maiden, but also, you know, he had, he was inspired by like the DC stuff, like Brian Baker and uh, you know, Dag Nasty and stuff like that. And then still molded it into his own, like he has his own style. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when we were coming at, he was coming at that from a sort of um, like, he was super into Iron Maiden before he, um, heard ever heard brian baker so it was interesting how he okay. interpreted that in such a in such a kind of special way and he's just kind of a uh unique so we, we were basically developing a sort of uh all-star team i yeah. thought yeah. and i think also for me i think like like, like doing like even just seeing munda and then like doing quicksand i remember thinking like the stuff that i grew up on and loved like led zeppelin like, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, right. I want to bring, like, I, John Bonham's my favorite drummer. And there was something, like, so danceable and, like, you know, just booming about the songs they were doing, largely because of him and the bass player, I think, in that band. For and, sure. Yeah. Like, I really, I was like, wow, I want to, you know, do something where you can bring some elements of that. And, you know, to whatever, to whatever end, I think we, we, you know, we brought a lot of different stuff into it. And, and I Sergio think going back to Sergio has such great music taste too that like stuff I'd never you know would, he just grew up on things I never would have been exposed to. And the the reggae thing too. I mean, going back to like you know our kind of like bigger within our punk world, you know, you had these like um, t- huge touchstones like you know the the kind of Emakai and Bad Brains kind of yeah. poles. Um, and obviously the bad brains kind of made it permissible to bring reggae and I guess you get back and go back to the clash. Yeah. Yeah. And the but, sex um, pistols, there's that sex pistols movie pissed, uh, the filth and the fury. And it shows, uh, there's a junior Mervin song in it. And I remember thinking like, why is there reggae in this punk documentary? And it really like confusing. Then, yeah, it was. Yeah. But it, it's, it's it funny all, for me because I had the opposite. I, I, uh, I was into reggae and didn't know really much about punk, like a you know, friend with an older brother, like turned me on to like the Ramones and the, the Clash and stuff. But it really was through reggae that I, I got introduced to, you know, punk, like the Clash and stuff. So, that, you know, I remember and Sergio, we started, we really shared that uh, Sly and Robbie are this, you know, like really super influential producer team. It's a bass player and a drummer that played on so many Jamaican records mm-hmm. and finding somebody else who loved that music. I was like, ah, I wanted to be like the Sly and Robbie of hardcore. And see, they uh, worked on that Fugazi record, remember? They worked on End Hits. Sly and Robbie worked on Sly and Robbie, yeah. If you look in the production credits, they they worked on one of the songs, yeah. How did I miss this? Yeah, that's that's wild. I gotta look it up. Yeah, Yeah, we just did an episode where we went through every Fugazi record in chronological order. And um, Holy shit. And that's on there. And, And a lot of those like Red Medicine and End Hits, they have like weird kind of dub, you know, spacey stuff. And um, there's yeah. a drum podcast called, uh, called uh, Trap Set. Set. It's yeah. amazing. And he, I like, I, the reason what Walter turned me on to is like, this guy wants to interview you. And I saw it like, Walter was like, you know, he did Phil Collins and stuff. It's a pretty big deal. And I remember looking <laughs> and seeing that he did Sly, Sly Dunbar. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I just want to be associated with that guy. And then when I listened to the episode with Sly Dunbar, I was just like, holy shit i had no idea i just basically knew him through jamaican music and i knew he'd work with the stone you know with the rolling stones and stuff but like 
the, his list of credits is just like Serge Gainsbourg, like all just yeah. every oh. cool thing. Like he's somehow attached to 50 different worlds and he's just the most humble dude. I listened to your podcasts. I liked it a lot in preparation for this. So. Oh, uh, the, the Joe Wong one? Yes. yes yeah, I've been great. on the binge with those. He's, he, like his list of guests is incredible. Awesome. I, I should I should have I listened to the one this is off topic but the the one with uh, the drummer of Sunny Day Real Estate's pretty oh yeah that wild. one's very pretty wild yeah. he's I'll listen to that he, one next he does not hold back at all no I'll just so say that were you to get only together for six weeks before you recorded this seven inch I don't know if it was six weeks but it was, it was, very it was a very brief okay. time like yeah. uh, and and I as and this is how I kind of, from my perspective, like um, I had done, I did this Moondog thing. I tr- was trying to like do something with it, but to be honest, like it, the Moondog recordings were never really finished. Yeah. So I wasn't, I don't know, for some reason I was kind of stalled in making that get to the next step. And before like I was able to do that, Quicksand really, you know, when Alan joined the band and we had, you know, um, I didn't really know Sergio that well. I knew um, Tom uh, pretty good, and I knew Alan. Obviously, we were roommates. But, um, you know, Tom worked with Sergio at a health food store, uh, uh, Whole Foods, not Whole Foods from our big chain, but it was just called Whole Foods. I was on Spring Street. And so I was just kind of getting to know Sergio and – it was kind of tenuous, the whole band, you know, and the cool thing about Sergio too, was that he, you know, me and Tom, especially, and, you know, Alan kind of by proxy, although I don't think Alan was ever really that like fully embracing of it. We're basically like known for our kind of youth crew uh, sort of, you know, vibe. Mm-hmm. And Sergio was so out of that. Like Sergio was not in that group at all. That, that kind of tribe within the hardcore scene. So it was really cool to play with someone that was like, not on all these revelation seven inches that had kind of a different musical uh, pedigree and, um, and, and came from a different click. Um, but you know, that was a tenuous thing. Cause I, you know, I don't know Sergio might, might may or may not have held this, but I always felt like Sergio was suspicious of me and Tom's uh, youth crew, uh, you know, uh, click in a way. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting I just that. Thought, I just think he didn't want to get, I think he probably had to say, I think we both had pretty similar feelings mm-hmm. is we didn't want to get dragged into something that we weren't a part, like didn't feel a part of in the first place. Like we yeah. wanted to move into something totally, you know, our own. And I think what, like in hindsight, what it gave, I think having, you know, like he, that it gave it a real legitimacy in terms of being something really different. Because if it was just like, if it was four, like four people from that clique doing, trying to do music that was outside of that, I think it almost feels like you're playing a, you know, you're like uh, putting on a mask and doing a little yeah. side show. But yeah. it felt because it was dragging in different, you know, different elements, it felt like it actually was. And like it really style. was. It yeah. was because he was coming from a different, like he didn't, like me and Tom had, especially an Alan by proxy, I think. I don't think he ever really embraced the whole yeah, but also I think playing thing. in Burn, like, you know, Burn was pretty different, I think, from that. that too, yeah. It was on Revelation. I think it brought, like, kind of brought two, I think, the, I think of, the, like, Sergio being and Burn kind of being more in that, like, you know, bands like, uh, what, what was Gingy's band? Uh, uh, Absolution. Absolution oh, or Altercation and these kind of bands that were, like, 
you know, like, or a Tommy Carroll type world. Like it was like it was a different, different click. Yeah. It was a different click. Gary and, Williams, and, like, and so we were crossing over those groups, but we weren't like, um, tight friends necessarily, but we, you know, we were just getting to know each other. And so in that time, like I had connections to revelation to where I could call Jordan and say, Hey, I want to make a recording and make a seven inch. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he would just say yes without having to, uh, you know, he just would say yes, just on the basis of me asking to do that. So, um, so we went in and recorded the seven inch kind of quickly. And in my mind, I just thought this, this lineup is tenuous. Like we've got to like put something down and um, document it as quickly as we can because, and also not only because of the, of the, the chemistry of our group, but just, you know, like when we started the, the, our conversation, it's just like everyone was moving different directions. People were moving apartments, finding new friends, meeting up with new girlfriends. Um, you know, people were just like scattering at that time and there was no career in this, you know, so, you, you know, going and doing that recording, I think when we listened back to it, um, all for whatever our like kind of uh, presuppositions about what this was or should be or what they thought they feared it might turn out to mm -hmm. into or something like that, those kind of things. When we listened back to this to, to this music, I mean, I think we were all first. I, I'm pretty sure we're all like, holy shit, this is just something really, really good and um, <laughs> and and different. And then, you know, I played it for, uh, you know, Siv, I played for my roommates and they were all just like, dude, this is like, wow, cool. You know, so I think we knew we had something special that was worth, um, you know, sort of... Uh, pursuing it further where it might've just been like a show at, at, yeah. uh, at, at you know, cause the previous lineup for Moondog was like a different group of people. So it might not have carried had we not recognized like, fuck, we have a chemistry. And within the seven inch, I think that everyone, everyone's kind of special power, although it kind of all gels together is, is expressed within that, those four songs. Absolutely. You know, yeah. you know what's weird too is like, I think, you know, back to what you said, Walter, about Sergio is I think he, if I remember correctly, like he wasn't thrilled about putting it on Revelation because he was just afraid that it would be, you know, it just lumped it into a, a thing that already was happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, like you said, you had the ability, you know, it was like, well, yeah, but we can put a record out now if we do this. And he, you know, I think he finally said, all right, yeah, that's all right, do it. But I think it was a little bit of a, you know, a compromise for him. And in terms of the six weeks, it might not have even, I don't know how, it was so short, Walter. Yeah. Like basically, yeah. And I don't think we didn't have a, we went in and recorded, but we didn't have songs really. We didn't really have a record. We had like a couple of riffs put together <laughs> in a pretty haphazard way. And I remember wow. we, we rehearsed in this basement of this terrible apartment with no windows and this really musky basement in Williamsburg. And I think I lived with uh, Chaka at the time. And, and Mark Ryan. And Mark Ryan, we live and, and we maybe Gavin. No, Gavin moved in after he took over okay. that terrible apartment after we okay. evacuated it. But he, it, um, you know, like they could hear us practicing, and we sounded fucking terrible. Like we had terrible equipment. The amps were terrible. The basement sounded terrible. 
and we didn't really, we hadn't really practiced. So it was just like, you know, like kind of, I remember just like playing like those songs with no distortion on the guitar, like just very bootleg. But like, you know, I, I just think we all had this feeling of like, yeah, this can be something really special and being able to hear that, you know, what it might sound like, you know, recorded or with decent equipment. And, but nobody else heard it. I remember those guys just being like, you guys fucking suck. Like that stuff is terrible. What are you doing? And then we went in and I, I, I just, you know, I remember thinking like, nah, they're wrong. It's going to sound good. And going in and recording it and then getting the kind of rough mixes back. And immediately, like those guys were like, oh yeah, that's really good. You know, like that. that that's awesome. So it, it didn't say, it sounded like a mess when we, you know, like we, had, we, we hadn't really played together as a band. We hadn't practiced. And like you said, Walter, I think when we went in there, it was just that like just having decent riffs and some like, you, you know, there was no, you know, melodies or lyrics yet, nothing. Okay. But it was always kind of a mystery of like, what is this going to sound like? And I remember saying Walt, to Walter, like something like, you know, don't limit yourself. Don't think hardcore. Like, just think like, what's going to sound great. You know how to sing and make it, you know, make it your thing. And then when he, when he, like, it was basically, you went in with Don, right? Walter, I don't think anybody was there except you and Don. Uh, yeah, probably just Don and I. And um, when you brought it to me, I was just like, holy shit. Like, I thought you would do a good job. But I was like, this is great. Like, I was in a good groove. Um, I mean, it's funny, like the, the atmosphere, you know, like, you know, for like, we were talking about Sergio's kind of uh, trepidations about revelation or youth crew and that kind of stuff. Like youth crew was just like the thing, like a summer before. And now we're in the sort of backlash period of what that first wave of revelation stuff is. And so people are kind of like, some people are starting to go to ABC no Rio, which I thought was the kind of interesting contingent of the movement, you know, because like, even though I was like in the revelation thing and loved all that stuff, like I, I personally was not, never felt uh, that that was my identity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that might've been the perception in some way, but like going from that, um, that, that kind of like very well-defined kind of idea to trying to do something more diverse, I think like, it was ultimately, um, you know, I had just I had just done the Gorilla Biscuit album. I mean, like the year before, basically, or something like that. Or not too long before. And so my lyric kind of thing was pretty sharp. And also just another influence that, that was really big with all of us was Public Enemy and hip hop in general. Um, yeah. So like all that kind of speed. Yeah, productions too. Yeah, all nice. that stuff was like what was what I was listening to. So my the lyrics are very rhythmic and... Um, you know, if you listen to like, not not that I was like, you know, uh, in any comparison, but getting influence from Chuck D and these different people who, yeah. who could use words in such a powerful way. And you'll hear like, you know, how a backup <coughs> would, would go on one kind of word and just kind of light up a thing. So I was like very influenced by that. And um, I think we were just like playing to the strengths, you know, you're, you're mentioning, you know, like obviously Alan to me, does so many different things but i think there's something about maybe just because when you first started playing you know john bottom was so influential yeah slide down bar to, to and your, were kind of it for me so to me like i mean the the riff of um omission i thought like like i wanted to play to that strength i mean omission to me is basically like a led zeppelin groove or like 
uh, Tom came in with uh, the riff to uh, Clean Slate, which is this kind of like Iron Maiden-y kind of thing, which we, ter- which we did other things with. Or like, uh, I think of, of omission, what was it, uh, Unfulfilled is just us like letting go of our guitars and allowing you and Serge to kind of be Sly and Robbie in some sort of way. And, and um, Hypno Jam with Dan is us like, again, I think going like, we could do an instrumental, we can put a trumpet in, we can, Mm -hmm. we can, we can do that. And that will say something and add a component to this group of songs. And, and with the lyrics, I think I was switching from the mode of, um, you know, wearing grill biscuits, it would be about us and what we've got to do and you know those kind of like group (coughs) ideas i was writing more about like me like my doubts what i wanted you know taking more of that personal voice not just like here these are my problems but i mean you know where the 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 voice changes from um where we've got to stop those guys you know and we've got to do this together and all that kind of stuff to more of like fuck, I don't know what to do. You know, maybe this is the, maybe this is the answer. Maybe that's, you know, it's like a questioning thing that I think um, that I was actually really going through. And I think probably like everyone in our, that we would expect to possibly listen to it could relate to it because we were all going through that in some way or another. You know, yeah, what's every, funny everybody's is, growing up. Everybody's growing up. Yeah. It's not as, not as clearly defined. It was easier when it was just like, okay, I wear, you know, I shave my head, I put on my sneakers and go mosh and, you know, that's, that's it. You know, that now it's, now it's getting a little more complex. Like, how am I going to pay rent? You know, uh, what's funny about that, right? When that, when I think of that record, like doing that, you know, that six weeks or whatever leading up to or four weeks, however long it was, Mm -hmm. is just how funny it was just like, and you, and what you said, Walter, that like, it didn't, it seemed very unstable and unsolid, just like, everything did you just hey do you want to be in this band yeah but people are shuffling around yeah and i think i just love the uh, the aspect of like when i think of that time period it's just a complete leap of faith on everybody's part like you said you didn't know sergio for i knew sergio we were friends or no actually i didn't know really i think i met sergio through that for the most part i you know knew who he was i think tom was the only one that knew him like from working with him he wasn't super tight with him but they were just right buddies and you know i knew you from you know we lived together briefly but it wasn't like no it just felt like yeah everybody were in different worlds at the time and it could fall apart at any point and the other leap of faith part was that it was just like other than seeing like there's something in the early incarnation of it that that could get wings i remember just thinking like there's nothing that really indicates other than hearing you sing in a room like you weren't a i never heard you in a band you weren't a singer in a band yeah. you were a player but i was just like nah it's gonna be good and you know the same thing with all that stuff i remember we got in the basement we had these riffs and we're like all right we're gonna book time to uh to record and i remember this real distinct memory of you coming by i was working at also a health store health food store uh prana on first avenue and you came (laughs) by and nobody could be with you at for the you know as far as as i remember it was just like you going in with don fury everybody else was working or whatever Uh and thinking like that's fucking crazy. Like we were making a record and you know, there's no actual songs. There's a couple of riffs we know that we threw together. And what is this guy going to do? And I remember just saying to you like something dumb, like, like just don't, don't get caught up in hardcore. Like just think 
Like bring out your inner, like think bell bottoms in seventies and rock and roll <laughs> and just go in there and like belt it out. And you were like, all right, cool, whatever. <laughs> Dismissed that and then came back with it and laid like a, uh, you know, rough mixes on me. And I remember just thinking like, oh, this is way better than what I, you know, what, what I would have expected at, at the, you know, at, at, as a, at the best of my hopes. I was like, this, cause wow. it's not, it's not just somebody emulating. Like I thought that was kind of, not cool about what some other bands were doing that were trying to, you know, stretch out. I think you could really hear that they were trying to be like uh, something else that was going on. And you were singing, but it had its own style. And I didn't in any, I'd, I'd never heard the Gorilla Biscuits record, to be honest. Like, it's kind of weird we played together, but I just, that's not a record I owned. And I didn't know you wrote the lyrics. So it never, you know, I didn't know that, I, in my mind, you had never really sung and you'd never really written lyrics. And we were just like, all right, I guess he's uh, the, the captain here has no experience doing this. I wonder what it's going to be. But the lyrics knocked me dead. I was like, these are like really legitimately some of my favorite lyrics, you know? And, uh, and I, that was like, so that's why I, like at that moment I was like, oh, wait, this is going to be great. We can make this happen. Uh, yeah, thank so you. With, with the lyrics, I went, so like, cause there's three songs with lyrics on here. Omission, like what's, mm-hmm. What were you going for with that song, with the lyrics? So you talked a little bit about the music, you know, having that like Zeppelin-ish groove. Uh-huh. Like, can you talk about the, the lyrics a little bit for that one? Um, I guess it would have probably started like, like most things that I'm writing. It's usually I'll start from just the first line and like whatever kind of sounds good for the first line, then I'll start to think about where it goes. I guess actually maybe that was the beginning of that sort of way of doing it because um, with writing lyrics in Gorilla Biscuits, I was thinking, I think I would write more from like the title and then kind of start back, uh, you know, walk it backwards from that. Whereas this, I started from the first, my first thing to to the song. So um, I don't know, omission, just, you know, I mean, it, it, there's definitely specific, there's a point of view, you know, it's just basically like, um, you know, what's unsaid, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's basically, uh, if I were to like boil it down, it's probably of the, of the world of songs, of the stab in the back kind of variety, like, you know, but in a much more nuanced and, you know, yeah, kind it's got- of way. It's not like stabbed in the back. It's very, yeah, it, I don't want to say vague, simple. but like it's, yeah, it's, it's not, it's, it's more abstract. I think that's the right. Yeah. Way. There's more abstraction. And also like in truth, like, you know, the idea of hardcore, what's so cool about it is it's like simple solutions and, and simple answers to the, the, the problems that you're being faced with. You know, you stabbed me in the back. That's the problem, you know, uh, where why people are um, duplicitous or, you know, is more nuanced, you know what I mean? And like, maybe you're, you know, it's just not as simple as it appears and, you know, that you can um, approach that same sort of emotional kind of thing from, uh, uh, you know, a different sort of, more enlightened point of view but i mean i was probably just going for what i thought sounded cool and like using words that match the music in their power or mm-hmm. lifted them and and tried to like find those but you know it's sort of um 
I, I think just I learned from hardcore how to write songs and lyrics. So I was probably using a lot of those, that, that kind of stuff. Because omission, you can see when you, now, especially after talking, you can see the rhythmic, the like, like you said, like the Chuck D, the hip hop, Mm-hmm. Like it, it's there in that song for sure. Um, then Clean Slate, like like we talked about, that one is a little more, I don't want to say straightforward, but that's uh, has a different, totally different sound than Omission. And yeah. the lyrics uh, on that are, are cool too. Like what, what were you thinking with that one? I guess that's more of, of a social commentary kind of thing, which is, uh, you know, kind of along the lines of like, you know, media or your peer group, how you're, you're become impressionable and, uh, you know, um, will go along with the herd or uh, even not be aware of, of how you've been kind of programmed or how you're, uh, you know, I don't want to put too much into the song because it's, it also, it means different, I guess, you know, you don't want to explain it too much, but I guess that was what I was riffing off of, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just kind of, but again, you know, it's a, it's a theme that I had kind of hit on maybe in other songs, like with GB, like I think um, Stand Still is kind of like a anti- TV kind of programming kind of song in, in a way. And, you know, it's just kind of returning to that theme to some degree, but again, with just like a little bit different perspective and yeah, um, a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say like, it's a little less right on the nose. Like you kind of have to read it and, and, you know, you can mm-hmm. interpret it, but that's kind of what I thought too. That's why I wanted to ask. I don't usually ask about lyrics too much. Cause I'm not, I'm not really much of a lyric guy, to be honest with you. I'm more into like the melodies and I'm actually like not either. You know what I mean? Um, I really admire when, a, when a lyric can just evoke a feeling in somebody that maybe the person who wrote it is, has some very specific idea, but it, it's just becomes, it, it lives in, in the, the listener, you know, in the imagination of the listener. So like, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're talking about what I think I meant at the time. And I don't think that the songs are so like um, abstract or artful that it's like, you know, much to go into. But I think in in just like the development of like the click or not click, but maybe the, our peer group at that time, I think it's reflective of that um, sort of like movement towards uh, uh you know, sort of more nuanced points of view than you would have in hardcore. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why that was, is the age, the, the kind of like arc of our movement, you know what I mean? Um, you know, I came up in this kind of, uh, yeah, revel- you know, where it went is obviously where it is focused on revelation. So I came yeah. up with that whole thing. And that is so very stark and, and clear in, in its presentation and, and base- the basic lyrical content and the kind of way that the music goes and that's why it's so strong and so timeless but i think at this point where the whole scene was kind of breaking up for all kinds of different reasons the the message gets filtered through these new lenses that were just kind of um just it's sort of intrinsic to that time in your life and and you know whatever that period of time in, in new york city and like our little friend group so how many how many shows did you play where you just sang and didn't play guitar? Um, 
let's see, for the most of the first year, probably. Okay. Was it? Yeah. Hey, was that the way it was? Well, my memory was that I thought that you had, that you played guitar initially and then stopped and then went back to it. Is my memory wrong? I, pl I played guitar in our rehearsals. Because you didn't I play was, when we played live? I didn't play when we played live because um, I play guitar to write. You know, yeah. but we, but once we were performed, I mean, I didn't want to, I just wanted to be the singer. You know, I didn't want to plug in a guitar or, or carry it or any of that shit. Yeah. Um, so then when we went on tour, I think we went to Florida. I just sang, we went down there. We went to, we went on tour with Shelter and, and uh, Inside Out. And I just sang and we had Charlie on second guitar. Yeah, but didn't we, I think we went to England first and I think you played guitar. In England, that was later. That was within a year. But that's when uh -huh. I started playing guitar. The reason I started playing guitar, I mean, as in my um, uh, memory or from my perspective was um, when Charlie was in the band, we just sounded so big and so tight that when Charlie wasn't in the band, because he lived in Cleveland, so he wasn't, you know, he, he didn't play with us. Yeah. Um, I just felt we had lost some power. So I started playing guitar on some songs. And then by the time we went to England, uh, I was playing throughout. And I think when we went to England, we were already just like on a new trip. We were playing like, we were more yeah. influenced by like Sonic Youth and- Well, I remember, I remember really early on, I thought, I, I remember thinking you like always pushing you to play guitar and saying like, yeah. Yeah, it's just a, I just felt like it was a better match and look for us. You know, mm -hmm. just like two guitars and two, you know, two different options for playing off of each other at the time mm -hmm. seemed mm -hmm. great. So I remember us being psyched when you were playing guitar and definitely now, like you're just such a great guitar player that it, uh, Thank you. Yeah, I, I uh, would have been like, I just can't imagine doing the, like doing it with, uh, with you just singing, you know, I imagine it like in a very positive light when I, when I think that I'm when I'm carrying a guitar to the fucking airport. <laughs> I think I, I, I zigged when I should have zagged, but um, you know, it's, it's all good now, you know, it's, it's I think it also, it I think I should have played trumpet, you know, <laughs> great one. But also having you, I think on guitar and vocals, it was another way to, in a way, at least visually to kind of distance from, the typical hardcore band of yeah, like, it's a little bit more front serious man. looking it's a little yeah. more professional looking like you yeah. look up on mtv or on you know some of these bigger bands helmet you know starting to come yeah. through in the early 90s and it's like it's not just a guy up front singing it's a little yeah. bit more um yeah. musically dialed in but yeah. i think quicksand cool. was the, oh sorry i was gonna say quicksand was the first band that i saw live where the singer played guitar uh -huh. and there didn't seem to be that barrier well it's c probably because he comes from hardcore and and not yeah. from rock so i think Walter you're right has that you know that hardcore aesthetic and he just plugged it in like he's saying with the lyrics he just plugged it into something a little bit more refined and the next level yeah were you aware of that outside of that i think you had to work a lot harder walter to make that connection uh, you know, i feel like a lot of people who are singing and playing guitar that's you know that's your excuse to not be that engaged mm -hmm. kind of focus like i got enough to worry about i got these two things you know but walter you were doing, a, lot I think a lot of both you know yeah. you, were do, you were doing you were carrying a show the way like uh somebody was just singing would do yeah i mean coming from hardcore that was all of the 
the, the um, that was just the mode that I was in, you know, mm -hmm. the, for that's what, how I had learned how to do all this stuff. The only reason that I was in bands and, and doing tours and making records and stuff is because of what I learned through, through hardcore. Yeah. So, I mean, I brought that to while we eventually were doing things that were sort of rock in like, you know, because of just the progression of it. Um, and I mean, by what I mean by rock is like doing a rock video or MTV. Or like, and yeah. Like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But in, in, it, you know, always intrinsic to the band. And I think, you know, for generally for the good, I think it gave us some sort of sort of secret zest to people yes. that didn't know what hardcore was. There was people that would be like, you know, of the bands that they could were being exposed to it in that given release period, we might stick out because there's something about us they can't put their finger on that makes us different in the world of guitar music. They yeah. might relate to the heaviness. They might relate to the, you know, anything from like the, the Led Zeppelin bit or, or whatever, you know, whatever it is about the, the, those touchstones that made sense to them, the metalness of it. But there was something a little bit that they maybe couldn't put their finger on. And mm -hmm. uh, I think from the, the other side of it, from the hardcore kind of initiated side of it, it would be the other thing. Like, that's cool. These guys are still doing this hardcore thing, but they're, they're not compromised by these other aspects of, of, of style or influence because that's really how, you know, I see you're wearing a loveless t-shirt. Mm -hmm. Like we can love this, this music form authentically and also be into all other kinds of things. Yeah. Which, which now I think is pretty commonly understood. But at that time, I think it was a little bit more like you sold out, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, that's be the thing too. And then, you know, going to the back then going to the major label was like every band you read every interview and every zine, every band had to justify going to a major label. And now yeah. I feel like nobody cares. Yeah. yeah people, people want to be able to finance the thing. If, if yeah. they can't, they can't finance the thing, the thing, you know it's 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 more of a struggle so uh to, yeah. to, to put it out there i mean any anyone on a podcast you know or a patreon account like there's shit that needs to that microphone looks nice you know like who's <laughs> buying that microphone <laughs> you know what i mean like it, yeah. it means it's it, it allows for a better product and you know so i think but the idealism of of the of that scene i think is still super important and core values of um that i think are still guide what you know what we do you know like yeah. we still approach our band with those ethics uh although they are um fit for the times in which we live and, and the realities that we uh are going to encounter in, in trying to like make really good music that we're excited about that we feel uh that we want to share with people you know, and, and do that in the best way and, 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 you know, lovingly. Well, yeah. jumping ahead a little bit, but on this topic, how soon after you put this record out, did major or bigger labels start sniffing around quicksand? Alan was, was the key man on that. And I've got to go pee. So Alan, <laughs> All right, have a good pee. <laughs> um, I don't know. We, yeah, I guess it was probably like, we, it was within the year, wow. you know, we, uh, like, I, I think for me, like, I didn't have those, I, I didn't, I, I thought to a lot for a large part about hardcore as like, 
you know, and the, the DIY part about it is like, it, I thought it was cool that you didn't have to wait. But at the same time, I also wanted, like, I really wanted, that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I was like, I want to play music. Yeah. That just seemed like the obvious thing is you need to be able to, you know, finance things. And so I, I remember just going and like figuring out, like getting some book, like all you need to know about the music business or something. I've heard of that book. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I remember just reading like, like, how the fuck does this shit work? And then like looking into it and like, all right, you got to find, you know, an attorney or, a, you know, to to try and shop your stuff to a label, whatever. So, I, you know, I just went through the, the steps of doing that and got to somebody. And, you know, we just, at the time, I think the, you know, the, it was the Nirvana thing really, uh, really blew the lid off of it. Like all those labels were just like, all right, we don't know anything. So, you know, somebody tell us what to, you know, what to sign and that you could, you know. So yeah, I, I guess it was within a, a year. And we just, uh, I remember we were on tour with Seven Seconds, uh, it, you know, in Europe. We were opening for them in Europe and we got a, you know, a phone call like, yeah, they, we got the deal. We're good. Wow. And that was uh, Polydor, right? Was was who did Slip. Yes. Uh, yeah. And- you know, it's like, like, it's like, it feels a little bit like if anybody, I mean, you guys have a mortgage these days, you know, and like every like six months you get a new thing sent to you that they sold your mortgage to some other company. It felt a little bit like that back then. Like it started, you know, it was like you signed with Polydor, but then it was Island and, you know, like they were kind of like, and it wound up, you know, I think with the two, the two records are on this, but now it's probably like universal or some shit. Yeah. I think that's what I think. Like if you look on like Spotify or whatever, it probably just says universal. Yeah. They just keep like conglomerate. But it was, you know, it's, it's funny because in, in retrospect, I mean, I, I can't comment from being in the band perspective, mm-hmm. but it was a good move. Cause I think if you would have just done an LP on revelation, you know, maybe it wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't have it had is, the legs that. I think the thing that people don't remember, like what is like, forget, you know, not outside of like a budget or whatever to record. Cause a lot of, you know, that stuff didn't matter as much, I think as the, the it was like the distribution. Right. It's like, yeah. I don't know how, like, I don't know how Fugazi got so big and became a band that was like, you know, because the problem, the big problem was if you were on an indie, you really, you couldn't get your records in the store, you know, right. like, it, you know, like there was just no way for, you know, for people to be able to just go to the store and they, they wouldn't have your record. And I remember thinking that just sucks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and when you're in a band, you want people to hear your music. When we did the Fugazi episode, I mentioned too, that like, that was the first, they were the first band I ever saw um live like ever mm-hmm. um and you know they're to this day they're they're a top favorite band for me but yeah. they also gave me these really unrealistic expectations of like how bands should operate and right. like you like i'm like why can't every band have five dollar shows and why can't every why can't every band just put out their own records i mean it's also they're, like why can't every band own their own label you know like yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Too, right it's a good and, way to look at it and like you got to realize they're kind of like an anomaly yeah like uh, and there's a lot of work that goes into running a label and you have to really want to do and i think also that with super chunk and merge you know mm -hmm. like yeah they wanted to run a label too it wasn't just like you know what i don't think it was like well we got this band so let's do all the work to start a label and put out our own records and do it really well like they actually you know had an interest in doing that stuff yeah and okay. and like i say you want people to hear your stuff like when we talked to lou and armand from sick of it all they said like the reason they went to 
in effect was because they wanted a kid to be able to buy the sick of it all album in the at a mall like in yeah. the middle of nowhere america uh where you can't you know there may not be a local record shop yeah it was i mean it was I, it was even i remember just thinking like tower records on broadway like that sucks. You put out, you you know, we put out, uh, you know, you put out a record and if it's on an indie, they're not going to have it, you know? And it just seemed like, that seemed like a bummer to me. Like you want to, you know, there was college and everything was so reliant on like maybe get played on college radio and you know, whatever zines. And yeah. that was it. And if you, you know, like, even if like you were kind of limited to a much smaller world, if sick uh, of it all took God, uh, sick of it all took a, uh, uh, definitely dealt with the backlash for signing to like, in effect, oh, yeah. which at, at a time at the time was, you know, a step up, but is was really just a moderate, you know, indie, and they they did that at, at great sacrifice because I'm sure that the deal wasn't like favorable to the artist, you know. So, uh, you know, and at the time that we um, were, uh, you know, getting in that process of like, oh, should we sign to a major label? Like, uh, you know, I was living in Long Island City in a you know 600 square foot apartment with uh two roommates and a, a full of shit cat litter box uh when i ended up in uh when we signed uh and i had my own like nice you know modest apartment that i could afford and pay and i got like a bank account and could go on tour and all that kind of stuff a lot of my like uh thinking about it changed you know, it was like uh, that, that, that I wasn't as, as I, I felt like this was okay to experience yeah. this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and with, with all the, the respect of, um, you know, and we continued to like ethically, like we, want, we kept our shows as cheap as we could possibly keep them at, uh, you know, for the principle of it. You know what I mean? And because we didn't want our fans to go to our show and be like, you know, this show is fucking bullshit. It costs $12. Like you're fucking ripping us off. So, you know, we couldn't go to five, you know, or, or, or whatever, but it was like, we were, we did our best to make those choices in a way that like we could live with and that we felt were, were fair enough. And I think that those, um, although we took some shit too, you know, um, for it, uh, Mostly from young people, I feel like, that give that shit because, like, as an adult now who has a job <laughs> yeah. that I, yeah. I I absolutely despise, yeah. like, why wouldn't I want to – why wouldn't you want your favorite artists to be able to live off it? You can enjoy the music and go see them, and they don't have to worry about, you know – We weren't rich, dude. Rent. We were, yeah, we were exactly. just we – just, we were just, like, you know – getting paid what a low level entry employee was getting paid but we were right. we were doing what we we were spreading our our music and 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 sharing with people like not that we were like some benevolent organization but we were like um doing music and and bring which means bringing people together and yeah. you know uh and when people are together in a room to see music you know, people meet each other, people like get inspired to create some other thing. And that's culture, you know what yeah. I mean? So we're, we're participating in that, in that conversation. But I mean, from being in hardcore, like, uh, you know, um, anybody that steps out of the orthodoxy at that time, and I'm not even criticizing it. Like if you're stepping over the line of from in the, fen in the fenced in area of what is hardcore to the, 
the, the area outside of that fence, then there's going to be people that are going to be like, fuck you. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? it, it's it just intrinsic, for us fine it's because intrinsic John, to it. Yeah, I think it really worked out fine for us because I think what, the, like what we were doing by you know, switching it up with the music we were playing to a large extent, like the kind of people who are, you, you might have felt it more, Walter, because you were actually probably paying attention to what, you know, kids were saying in a fanzine or whatever, but, but mm-hmm. the truth is like those kids weren't really good. You know, like the, the people who were, who were real upset about it weren't really going to be that into our band anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's I mean, like, that's, 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 a, that's like, a think of it all. It really affected because those are the people, you know, like the people who cared or would be a big portion of the people coming to their shows. But yeah. for us, it was like the people who are coming to our shows, like they were either on board for, you know, for what we were doing or not. Like we were, yeah, we were kind of saying something sort of outside of it already. So that probably a lot of those people would have already jumped ship. And I, I think, think that- got lucky too, because it didn't crush us in a way. Like I feel like the two records we put out, I don't know that, I don't think it would have been any different for us if they were on an indie. Like I think the probably the trajectory of the band wasn't affected in a negative way by the label stuff. I think of a lot of other bands that were, where they, especially if they got dropped by a label, you know, they put out a record and most of the, a lot of the band, you know, they was like, they get to this place where they think like, that was our shot. And now this label dropped us. So the band's over. And I really yeah. feel bad for a lot of great bands and, and love with some of the ones that like Spoon. I feel like those guys, I love that they just kept going. Yeah. And, they had the one know, on, I think they were on Electra, right? And it got, they, they got, got dropped, dropped and it didn't stop them. They just kept going like it. Right. Like, it's hard to recover from that. And then, yeah, because it's like your people's dreams are caught up in that big rock yeah. star shit and then they get dropped and they feel like you know the bands are the opposite which is i think what you get out of hardcore is that like you don't really need them to do it like you know That's it. It, it benefits you fine but you're not gonna it's not gonna make or break what you what you're doing yeah. the irony about the, the whole major label drop thing is like a lot of times those records that came out and tanked like five years later everyone's clamoring for it and you know they it's a huge thing. Like I, I was a thinking, handsome record. Yeah. Or no, even like jawbreaker. Jawbreaker. Yeah. yeah. Everyone hated, done. I love dear you, but people hated it when it came out. And then within five years of, of them breaking up, you'd see people selling the CD. You had to pay like, you know, a hundred dollars on eBay yeah. for the CD. And then they get back together and draw a big crowd. But um, there was, yeah, tons of great bands at that time that did a major label album, got dropped and, you know, unfortunately stopped when they probably could have still put out some killer stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. That didn't happen. You know, like with us, I, like we never got dropped. They always want, they wanted to do a third record. And I don't, you know, like, I don't think our like uh, relationship with major labels had anything to do with, you know, like what our trajectory, I think it was, would have been the same pretty much. So but Walter, do you feel like that? I, I felt like not, we didn't really, we kind of just got, we got to tour without being in pain like so much. We got to tour I mean, and not be in a band for a t- at a time when we might have otherwise really been, you know, gritting it out. I think in a different world, we could have recorded an album for Revelation that um, would be good too. And yeah, um, sure. for the benefit for the benefit of having like probably spent a shitload less money doing it, we would have that kind of uh, – that hold the 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 rights to it which would be kind of nice but i don't know that we would have really um the the basis of the band was 
we were sort of just, and everything happening around us, um, it just would have been a sort of, um, I, I, I just don't I think, think I that, that was a move for us. Like, really, that's all it came down to for me was like, is that I don't think any of the indies really, like, it was impossible. They just, it, it was like a monopoly. They were locked out of like, you know, record store chains. So you weren't going to get your record available to most, most yeah. people out there. And that, yeah. you know, to me, it was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like if the only kid, the only people are going to hear our record are people who buy, buy fanzines and listen, listen to like college rock stadium or punk stations or something that it's really kind of limiting the audience of, for, you know, for the, for the music we're playing. I don't know if that we, and I think the good thing about the major label thing was, um, although this is so funny, like, you know, talking about major label uh, politics, uh, but it's like, cause we, this was such a, a, a thing at that time. But um, I think the upside of it for me, what I appreciated was, uh, and, and sometimes was shameful, uh, was that it, it kept us, you know, having this apparatus that it kept us like focused on the band, you know, and like we were uh, yeah. gonna go on this tour. We had like a bus to go on the tour that we could just, I think we played like 300 something dates in a year or something. We played so, we so played... many shows on Slip, it was ridiculous. Like we're very, wow. yeah. So it, we wouldn't have done with, that on our own. You toured with like right on Slip, going uh, getting a little, off track because you know oh, we're supposed to stay on the yeah on the yeah yeah, yeah. Ah, this <laughs> is about fun. Let's the last comments. Um, we don't want to really spoil fun. everything that happens yeah well but i was just gonna That's say you toured with rage against the machine right and then also off offspring or was that later that was, that was later. later that was white later. zombie and anthrax white I think zombie and anthrax. The way at that tour it was basically we started with like a full two-month u.s tour it, and i remember because it was the first time the uh, world trade center got bombed like mm -hmm. we were leaving New York on that day when they put the, there was a car bomb like in the garage or something. Yeah. And uh, I remember that we, we did that tour and then we did, yeah, we, we opened for Rage. I mean, there was maybe another helmet tour in there. Oh, we, that's right. We, we, uh, we did we, headlining tours too. Like we did, saying, uh, the first we, one was we did a, a couple of headliners. Yeah. We started with a two month headliner. Then we did like, yeah, like I think it was a bunch of opening and we tore, we headlined in Europe. And I remember the we the you know the we did basically the same tour twice. We we headlined at the end of it, and I remember mm -hmm. just like being in a cab and hearing that it was like the anniversary of mm -hmm. uh, of that you know of the the bombing the year earlier, and thinking mm -hmm. like, what the fuck happened to this year? <laughs> what kind of year was that? <laughs> I can't and we went that. to Europe as well, and we, at least like a couple years, of times. Yeah, yeah it yeah. felt like ten years, and I just remember hearing that on the radio on the cab ride to Irving Plaza, and thinking like that can't be right. There's no way yeah. that was a year ago. It was fun. I mean, everybody in, from our world to like um, our scene, you know, sick of it all, we're also our peers and, um, you know, everyone was kind of coming up in this, you know, that, that we had in some ways, like the New York scene that we had come up in um, and, and the, the kind of environment that we made the seven inch in um, had new life and was, was, you know, artistically had, had gotten new life and uh, had expanded to a, a larger audience and not like such a large audience that it was like passe or annoying or dumb, but just like more people that were um, 
you know, there's just people like that are more into music than yeah. music plays a higher role in their life. So they're more discerning. They're looking for things. Those kind of people like were getting into us who maybe would have never have heard of us otherwise. And, and, and that was happening to us. And that was happening to, uh, you know, a, a good bunch of our peers too. So it was, it felt like um, that, that was a cool, you know, even though there was corporate bullshit involvement in it, you know, there was also a lot of just cool, fun, interesting people oh, that, that had joined the, joined along and that was positive. It was a cool, would, it was an exciting time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I would sure. feel remiss about talking about uh, the Revelation EP without talking about Don Fury's and like how much. Oh, Don Fury is amazing. Yeah. That's yeah, please, yeah, please. Like, yeah, like I mean, you know, like I think Revelation, you know, like did they, they, you know, he found a real stride with that record label. Jordan did, and he was a big part. Actually, Jordan was on tour with us in England. Yeah, went, Jordan was the best. He was very close they, to our our thing. Yeah, I remember staying up to like four in the morning, and Jordan was like really into like computer hacking and shit, and just being like that, like yeah, Jordan's a trip. By what a trip he is. Yeah, but uh. But that label was really important, I think, to you know, to a big and a big part of what we what we did and what other people were doing then. But yeah, Don Ferry in New York, man, that record, like the idea, and to me, it's just that there was like, it was walking distance from where we're all living. Like you know, it was, you just go to Don Fury's. You didn't have to bring anything because the gear was there. We played on that drum. He had a drum set like in a little bubble because it was a tiny basement, you know. But he he just isolated the drums so he could actually play like a band in there. And uh, you could make a record that sounded good for like, I don't know, what was it, like a 50th of what you would spend, you know, <laughs> what the major label would make you spend. Because they would give you, they make it sound like all this money that they're giving you, but they made sure that you fucking spent it all. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it was go like there was impossible to make a cheap record then on a major label because they, you know. They, they just wouldn't let you. Yeah, they were giving you that money to make the record, not to live off of in their minds. Was the Burn 7-inch recorded before? Because it chronologically in Revelation comes after, but was it recorded before this quicksand? Do you remember? I can't say for sure, but I think so. Okay. I, I, would, yeah, I, I would. I think so, too. Was. That yeah. would make sense. So um, one of the things, too, to wrap it up, talking about touring, can you share? Uh, so you, you put the work seven inches recorded and then you go out. Was the first real tour that shelter inside out tour, which was, I guess, if this was, says it was recorded in April. And I think the that start tour started maybe in the late spring. So like June. Can you share maybe some memories? Because we're going to be talking inside out next next time. You know, what's so weird, Walter, is my memory. You know, I guess it's a while. It's a grip of time ago. But my memory, in my mind, we made the record. Like I have this memory of making the record with the intent to go to England. So I, my chronology is wrong. It's I possible. We, I thought I mean, that I, England was first and then that stuff. But I could, I, you know, could totally be wrong. I think by, I, th I just remember by the time we went to England, I think the seven inch was, had, um, I think it's. I think we were. I think the other stuff was earlier. I can't make up the early tours that I remember is when we went down to Florida, and uh, I remember that being very new because I was like just getting to know Sergio. Um, our trip with Inside Out and uh, Shelter might have been in the same era. Um, I'm not sure which came first. I have a feeling that that Shelter. Did we play Seventh uh, Street Entry. Did we get as far as Minneapolis on that thing? Yes. Yes, that okay. was as far away show. as we got. I remember I playing think, the I think that was 
I think that was probably the, the first tour. Maybe we had played the Anthrax. Was and, that the uh, only show? Did we play a whole tour with Inside Out? I remember playing that show with Inside Out, but I feel yeah, like they were on the tour. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. They, must they be, were in the, I think it, I think it's possible with all the driving and shit that we were getting places so late, and, you know, and then trying to, and then just finding a place to crash that there was very little hangout time mm. at those shows. That's, that's, for tr- that's for sure. And also that the Inside Out guys were in the, uh, the Krishna bus. And I was going to say that was like the tour with the, the Swami bus and the... Yeah. Uh, and How do I have no memory it? of that? That's crazy. Because <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, because you came up with uh, Alan, you know, playing with Vic before, then you do this tour. But even Vic has a, a book where he talks about that experience. It's a really great read. Uh, and he basically talks about how he just stayed with the Krishna bus most of the time. Like he wasn't even hanging out. Yeah, my memory of that, while well, there's like, I remember hanging out with Vic and, uh, and Zach at the entry, but that's the only time I remember seeing them. So I thought it was just one show that we played with them passing, like going the other way or something. And there was a time where I think there, we also, our van broke down. And so we switched vans and then, uh, and I think Kevin and Chubby Derek. Fresh drive us around? Was that the Chubby thing? Fresh drove us around. And uh, so we kind of went rogue for a little while. And, right. and those dudes were with, uh, on the Krishna bus, which I, at that time was like, I loved all those guys, but I wasn't hanging out on the Krishna bus. So I probably wasn't seeing Vic too yeah. much. And, uh, and I, yeah, I saw those guys like Mark and Zach and, uh, but yeah, we were just, you know, we were doing our thing. We weren't, uh, our there was a lot was of traveling, so, long drive. Our show was so bootleg too. Like we, yeah. the breakdowns, we broke down. I mean, we were at some kid's house in Buffalo for like days waiting for a part or something. And then Matt Dunmire. Up. Mm-hmm. Another Matt one, Dunmire like when we went to through. Florida, the van wouldn't, we took a van that wouldn't start back up without a jump if you shut it yes. off. So we drove it straight to Florida. <laughs> and when we'd stop for gas, we would just gas it up while it was running. It was yeah. like ludicrous. And I, I also remember playing a show on that record that where it was like, we played a show in DC with Fugazi, opening for Fugazi. And they, I, I guess, you know, they had heard, I guess they liked us enough to invite us to come play. And we went and played a show at like a church. Okay, St. Stephen's maybe? And we must have looked like fucking lunatics to them because we showed up and we looked, we had like, we didn't look like a punk band at all. Like we just like, yeah. at that point, I think we just, and we had, Sergio, his baby and wife, or you know, partner, and a and a dog. Like <laughs> the dog, yeah. the meth came with us and brought the pit bull. So there's a pit. It was like the four of us, a pit bull, and you know, a, a baby, brand new, like a brand new baby, and and two. And they they were just like, what the hell? But they invited us <laughs> to stay at their place. We, you know, they were like, you want to, you know, you guys need a place to crash, and we were like, that would be great. And then Jeanette was just like, uh. You guys have cats? Because we had this dog that like was just a cat killer. Chatting, <laughs> like, immediately, dog. it would kill a cat. And they were like, "Yeah, we have three of them." We were like, "Ah, oh, we can't." And they were like, oh, "That'll no. be fine." And we were like, oh, "Probably not for the cats, probably." And we, then we just drove home. <laughs> yeah, like we, we the, the van was falling apart. Like we, everything we did was so bootleg. Like we uh, we would show up without amps. And, like, yeah without backup guitars, without any, you know, kind of not really ready to play. That's, That's always fun. Can I borrow your gear? 
on that record. <laughs> one, of yeah, my favorite, one of my favorite memories, memories from that era was uh, we played uh, when we were touring with Seven Seconds. The 12 string um, guitar, you brought the Rickenbacker. Yeah. <laughs> I bought this, I bought a 12 string uh, Rickenbacker and uh, Go I, I, I was just <laughs> dying to, uh, to play. So I brought it up on stage and I was, I was wearing, I think my look back then was like uh, a denim, like a cut off denim doinks, like kind of like never nude <laughs> style. And um, <laughs> with with a Rickenbacker, right? and it, and I just it fell out of tune, and I didn't have a tuner. Just like yep. okay, at the at Metro, which is with the a really stream, nice club in 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 Chicago, and just going like okay, can someone give me an A? And just trying to like tune this guitar. <laughs> it's like an anxiety dream that you have, like you know, before <laughs> some big meeting, like where you're in your underwear on stage trying to tune a twelve string guitar. Like I lived that. I can um, add to that story. I'm sitting near the, you know, like somewhere with someone talking to someone at the, near the entrance of the Metro at the end of the show. And these kids are walking out. And I just hear this kid, he's like, fucking seven seconds rocked. And this other dude just like, yeah, but that fucking opening band, they sucked. Like, <laughs> he's so right. Cause we were, we played out of tune the whole time. Like we were completely yeah. out of tune. We just couldn't pull it together. And I we remember thinking learning. that show like, I'm sure we're doing something good here. Like we're gonna get it together. Like we're gonna be, you know. <laughs> but we did not ever act together for a lot of those early shows. Yeah, that was probably a bad show. Um, yeah, was you know, it? That, that particular one was special. You got it. You got all. You learn. That was yeah, the last got, time I, I like brought that, out the, the guitar. When I think <laughs> of that EP, I just think that uh, yeah, we went from being like as not prepared to play, you know, to really be good at shows within a few months. Like we just played so much that we were uh, like, it's a total turnaround. Yeah. I think we went through stages. Like when we first, I think, you know, um, when we, like I can remember opening for Danzig in, in Buffalo. And I don't think Charlie was in the band at that time, but just we had a sort of like rock precision to us. Okay. That was amazing. And then, and I remember we played at um, this. Uh, but it, but it also involves showing up like so, like three hours late and almost not being allowed to play. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> they but, barely but just it, let us on. And and the van had no windows. We had like just uh, it was with uh, in the middle of winter. We're all just in like, this cargo van with like our van. Uh, me and Tom uh, had the van at our place, and we lived in Long Island City, which was a taxi kind of depot area. And there was lots of like streetwalker prostitutes and, uh, and criminals. So our battery, we had to take the battery of the van inside to the apartment every night because we got our battery stolen. And there'd be uh, condoms in the back, like used there'd be condoms. condoms in the back uh, of the, of the and they, and they uh, broke our windows. So we had just like plastic, um, like uh, on where the window should go. It was, we called it oh, wait, the we got Iraqi terrorist. We got stopped mobile. by a trooper going up to Buffalo. That's why we were late. We got stopped yeah, by okay. a trooper, and he comes up to the van. I'm like driving, and I, I, like, oh, we had to switch because there was obviously only one with a license, and mm -hmm. I like worked the night before. You can't, you know, like I, nobody else can really drive. So like Tom was driving the van or something without a license, and so we get pulled over in this like just atrocious looking truck, and we had to switch before the cop got there. Otherwise, we, he was driving without a license. So the yeah. cop comes up and he just says, what the fuck is this thing? Like, <laughs> what? Like, what the fuck are you driving? <laughs> and Tom is the worst driver. We call him Mr. Magoo. He could like, he was like, this. I don't know how we survived that shit. But, but, but my point was that we, we went through phases. Like yeah. I remember us being very tight and on point for dancing and like the more metallic side of us 
shining yeah. through. And then uh, I think we went through a sort of like discovered like Sonic Youth, My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. And then just went to some other kind of lazed, like fucked up version of us mm. that uh, we, all within a year, you know, okay. we, we were just like moving so quickly. And, and it was funny by the time we got signed, I think the, the, what we were at that, you know, that EP reflected, you know, we, you said like six weeks, I don't know how long it was, but it was yeah. this like really kind of sharp moment in time. But within a year of that time, yes, yeah, Sergio became a father. We had just done all this like wild shit yeah. and we were not as well defined at that point no, when we got crazy. signed. Yeah, what's crazy about that EP is I, I, like no joke, I don't think any of the three of us, maybe you more than anyone because you had an idea of what you were, what you were thinking about singing. Right, but to the three of us, like total mystery. Like I, a, I like not only the the what the vocals would be, but we were just playing through such crappy gear, like crappy amps and a bass. Yeah, it sounded so bad that it was just like you could hear the basic riff, but I had no idea what what it was going to sound like until it was done. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know how the fuck we did slip, dude, because we were just so off the rails, like trying to figure out what to do, what to do yeah. yeah because we we were sort of i think at that point we're almost in a position of like whatever we had gotten signed for we were no longer into we were like ahead of ourselves yeah <laughs> ahead of what like all right we we now we're in the spot we can do whatever but we don't we're not we have the ability to do whatever we want to do but we don't have a you know, concept of what that's going to be yeah yeah can i bring things back to the seven inch and i have to ask yeah. about the artwork and it's and I have a question that relates to Danzig also, but I'll save that. But what can you tell us about the cover in the back, this headstone that everyone knows and loves, but we're not sure where it came from or what the story uh, is behind it. Well, it's from, where did you get that from? That was from a, a modeling uh, catalog. Alex Brown, who was my roommate at the time, uh, was really into modeling. So okay. he would do, uh, he was just super into it. So he kind of got me into modeling for a minute you know uh and that by modeling i mean you know glue and plastic stuff okay so that was from uh from one of his modeling catalogs just he would have awesome. these like yeah so those are soldiers from some war or something i, I don't know they're like modeling dudes because he was into that and um i just thought it looked um and and the, how it's like grainy yeah is is uh that was the beginning of photocopying and i just couldn't believe that you could photocopy things so I went to, to uh, on 13th Street, there was a bunch of these copy shops and just took the modeling catalog and you know photocopied a bunch of stuff. And that's why it has that pixelated look. Okay. Uh, it's from an early uh, era of photocopier. And um, I don't know, I, I didn't really think about it except that it was sort of random and uh, kind of looked like someone yelling and, and being pissed off about something. Yeah. And, uh, and the logo, the the the, the font, uh, Siv did that from Grill Biscuits. Oh, that was my next question. That's awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah. I have um, a I have a refrigerator magnet of of this cover. <laughs> and my last <laughs> question on that is: I remember, so, people, someone, I remember people asking me if that was uh, like a sculpture, Walter, of you. Yeah. Well, the drawing looks more. <laughs> the drawing looks more like Walter on the inside. I don't that know. I, mean, I don't think the... either one of them do, but the yelling one, you know, like I remember him just being like, is that him singing? Okay. Is, is that, that like a weird sculpture of a photograph of him singing? 
the modeling, the the uh, the the illustration on the inside is also from the uh, from the the instruction. Uh, I think it's from the same modeling catalog. Okay. Uh, Alex had had tons of those things. So, and then also, I was going to ask about the um, the handwriting of the lyrics and all the liner notes were handwritten. And I did yes. some research and went down a wormhole. And Charlie Johnson that did that played with Danzig. I didn't really know him. That was, that was, uh, uh, Jordan said that, um, he had a friend that had really cool handwriting. Okay. And, and so I said, great. And it, I think he does have really cool handwriting. I, I like how it's, uh, how it's written out. Yeah. It looks good. And it really defines that era of early nineties kind of graffiti slash. Yes. Hardcore, I think. Yeah, I mean that—that that was definitely another. That I mean, we haven't really raised that, but yeah, that was also uh, that kind of graffiti, hip hop kind of connection was definitely. Mm -hmm. I think that's within a lot of the releases at that time. You, you'll see. So yeah, that that kind of was part of our deal too. Yeah. And then one track we haven't touched on just real quick before we wrap up with hot tracks uh, is uh, "Hypno Jam" with Dan. What was the idea? Were you just like, oh, let's have an instrumental on here? Did you just to have something totally different, like out of left field? Um, and then it says uh, featuring Dan Doolin, but also yeah. uh, Skinner, Skinner Box. Is that another person too? Skinner Box, no, that was his band. So yeah, we had, we had the three songs and um, then just kind of riffed. Ooh. It was uh, Sergio and Alan just kind of went and, and did, the, uh, did that, that jam. And uh, I thought it was really cool, but we didn't have that. I, I just, maybe I didn't, it just, I didn't have like a, a vocal to really match it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if there's even any guitar on it. I haven't listened to it in a long time. I think but, we just um, did that. I think we only, we had three, that we only had three songs. And I think we wanted to do that EP. And uh, it was going to be a fairly balanced, unbalanced sides. Yeah. I, th I, th I really think it was just literally a jam in the room there like mm -hmm. i don't think we went in i think we i think that was a jam you know at at don's during the session like, oh, that, yeah during the session that's my merry and you were like oh that's cool can we tape can you tape that and yeah we just did a take of it and then you were like oh you know it would be cool having dan yeah. come, i have a friend dan who plays trumpet he can just come down and, and play something i think it was pretty yep. much that simple yeah. and uh and because dan was in a ska band that was really cool and and uh and yeah, so it kind of added something in the end. I think it just added that, that, that flavor of, um, you know, it opened the door for us to do instrumentals and, yeah, and to also yeah. experiment in that, in that, in that world. So that, that was, I think, you know, for, for not a lot of work, it, it just kind of, um, it opened that, that up so that I, I, I love it. And also Dan, it's just, it's, and the name hypno jam with Dan is just so funny. Like, <laughs> it's a good um, name. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, it just also has a, a little bit of sense of humor because in all the, if you look at quicksand and all of it, so it's very intense. Um, but there's also a humor to all of it as well. If we skip way, way, way far in the future on Rev 100, there's a version of Dying Alone that's obviously pre-slip. Do you remember how far after the seven inch that was recorded and if it was recorded with anything else? Oh yeah, it was recorded with can opener. So that was um, when we were, we had a lawyer, you know, Al, uh, Alan uh, read the music business book 
And we acquired a lawyer who was then fielding these and, and also uh, trying to solicit a record label interest. And so I think in that period, and now maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think we said, oh, well, we should make a demo to represent where we're at at this moment. And uh, that was Dynalone and, uh, and Can Opener. Oh, cool. So it's the uh, slip demos, essentially. Yeah. So when, awesome. we, when there were, we, there were so many of them, right? Because we didn't, I don't think we, we didn't really do demos other than uh, that. That was probably all we had recorded after in between. Yeah. I yeah. I don't remember doing anything else. I, no, I, I, we just had a bunch of material within that. that yeah, we had a lot of cassette tapes. Uh-huh. Yeah, cassette tapes, rehearsals. A lot but of that poorly was labeled the, cassette tapes. I've got that one. was the only thing that we recorded that I put the, the lyrics on and all that kind of stuff. Cool. So, Alan, I don't know if you're familiar with our podcast, but we do a thing called Hot Tracks on here yeah. where, where we go through <laughs> and we talk about our favorite song on the record. And usually people in the bands will talk about, you know, maybe their favorite song to play or just whatever means the most to them. So uh, we'll let you we'll let you two guys go last. I'm going to kick it first and say that my well, let's, hot- let's let J- let's let Jason kick it. Oh, Jason, Thank kick you. it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let me kick it real quick. Yeah. Kick uh, it. Unfulfilled is just such an awesome song. I know mm. it's on slip, but I like the seven inch version also. It's raw. It's got subtle differences to it. Tom Capone doing his thing in the middle and then the TC3 shout. Where did TC3 come from? Uh, TC3 was Tom just saying like, I mean, if you know him, he's just funny in his seriousness, but okay. he's like, he, he wanted, to, again, he was listening to like current 93 and all this kind of interesting industrial stuff. And he just felt like Tom Capone wasn't a cool name anymore. So he wanted to have a more like kind of edgy kind of, you know, name. And so he wanted to be called TC3. And uh, so I thought it was funny to, um, you know, like in Agnostic Front when he goes, stigma. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I wanted to have a thing like that um, that would be funny, but also totally serious. And uh, it's perfect. And that was it. it is perfect. Yeah. So I love that part. Yeah. He shreds. That song rips and the lyrics are great to that song. Thank you. Thank so you. thank you guys very much. Thank you. Uh, well, I didn't go off. yeah. Well, my, I actually have the same hot track as Jason. Um, I love unfulfilled um you know i'm a huge fan i actually prefer the the version on slip uh but for this seven inch i think that 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 version it's cool because it's raw you know and um it was actually hard for me to choose between a mission and unfulfilled but if i'm gonna have to go hot track on this seven inch i'm going unfulfilled greg what do you got uh i'm gonna be the 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 different i'll split the uh, I, I like Clean Slate um, mm. just because maybe maybe because it's exclusive to this record. Yeah. Um, because I heard Slip first, so I'm more attached to the um, versions on Slip, like of Omission and Unfulfilled, even though I, I love both these versions as well. But I just think Clean Slate's a cool song, and I think it's got a lot of a lot of Tom Capone with the guitar stuff, and uh, I'm really into that. So. That's my hot track. All right, Arthur, what's your hot track? Arthur, Walter, wow. <laughs> Walter I used to Arthur. get that. It's I used to get that at, at CBS all the time. People call me Arthur. Call Arthur Walter. <laughs> um, I guess 
I mean, my heart says in a way that um, I think unfulfilled is so cool because I feel it's just loose and groovy. I think everyone shines on that song. Uh, but I'm going to, just because you guys have, have underlined those things, I'm going to make the case for omission because I feel it's such a great mission statement. It just mm. explodes with like this band that you've never heard before with this cover and stuff like that. Um, the baseline into this intro and just how that all revs up is, uh, I'm just really pleased pleased with I think uh, with that. I think really like when you start singing and there's that riff that like really kind of like you know driving chunky riff that's a blueprint man for a lot of things that came after a lot of bands like a whole I don't want to say a whole genre but like a whole sound if you think about it all of the bands that came after funny too that you know now uh Sergio plays with one of those bands which would be Deftones mm -hmm. but yeah you know uh, just so, so, so many. I think that that particular part of that song is a blueprint. Yeah, I guess, that, you know, so that's, but I mean, Unfulfilled is dope. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, I think it's for other reasons, but I wonder what Alan's hot track is. Yeah, let's hear it. I'm a contrarian, man. It's that hip hop <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Because I like the bird, you know, I mean, I really liked it, actually. I thought it was really cool. It's like this cool thing, it's cool instrumental. But, uh, I, you know, I like, for me, I like, the, I like the versions we did of those two songs on the record better. And Unfulfilled just never was really my favorite track. Like, it was mm. kind of, I thought it was, I th I, it was super important, I think, to developing what we were doing. But like Walter said, it's got the metal part of it was like kind of what I wanted, felt like I wanted to tone down mm. as we developed and figure out, you know, like the melodic part and like, you know, the, the melodies were like, I was more interested in for, for which song for clean, clean slate or for clean, or? clean slate was never one of my, it was just as a song, okay. I, you know, I think for, I don't know why we wound up not doing that way. And we needed more songs for the record, but we didn't redo that one. And I was fine with that. Cause I, you know, for me, it was like, you know, I thought it had cool aspects, but it wasn't, what I wanted, to, what I thought we should be aiming for. And the other two songs I loved, but I thought we actually did a better job on them with, uh, with the re-recordings. And that other thing's just weird. It just hangs out there. It just, yeah. it's, like, it's very unique to-, uh, to, to So Alan's favorite, Alan, you're unique. saying your, your hot track is Hypno Jam with Dan. Is that what, do we have you on the True. record? Love it. Yes. I love it, I yeah. love it. Did you ever bring- the record. Did you ever bring uh, Dan on stage? to play trumpet Run. and you did. Oh, wait, can really? I, 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 I would like to tell this story, please. Yeah, Walter. please. So this is Walter in a nutshell with this kind of stuff. Is he, he did, um, we, we played a show, like when we got, first got back together, we, he thought it'd be cool to bring Dan down. Everybody's like, yeah, definitely. But um, nobody, like Walter had, we, I, when we did those early shows, we played a half step down mm. in, you know, for, I guess, cause it was just a more okay. comfortable range to sing in. Yeah. In key, we put the guitars all a half step down, so that makes my it's easier for me to sing yeah. the high yeah. parts. Right. So, so which I think a lot of bands do live. I think there's something they even refer to it as like live tuning these days, or like live mm -hmm. standard or something. Oh yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I do think a lot. But so anyway, not a big deal. It doesn't change anything really. It's just slightly, you can barely perceive the difference without you know a starting point. But so Dan shows up, and Dan's got like a bunch of drinks in him. And he's a great trumpet player. This part is like, I'm sure he listened to it before he came, but it's super easy to play. 
but when you like as he sits down like 10 minutes before we go on walter's like he said you know start yeah oh you want to run through it once and he says yeah and he he starts trying to play it but he's like what the fuck that and walter's like oh is it does it have something to do with being two and a half step down and Dan's like, yeah, yeah, it does. It's a trumpet. You can't tune it down. Yeah. And Walter's like, don't worry about it, dude. You'll be fine. Like, totally in a great mood. Like, we go on and we play. Dan continues to drink and just comes out plastered, trying to figure out on the spot how to play this trumpet line a half step down on a trumpet, like, which, yeah, it was hilarious. <laughs> I don't think anyone really picked up on it, but it was, it was uh, shambolic. But it's kind of like, a, I mean, it made him look like he didn't know how to play trumpet. <laughs> but he, he's so cool. And the thing yeah. is, is that um, if uh, he just came out and played it great, we wouldn't care or have fun about it. You yeah. know what I mean? So it was, it's more memorable. It's uh, a jam. Yeah. I'm sure it's it's a, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a story. It wouldn't yeah. have been a story. Be a, there would be no story. It's epic. <laughs> yeah. And we, uh, it, of all the, you know, that was the only time and it was very memorable. I feel I like to Dan I, recently on the street, actually. I, I talked to him once recently and he met like, it was like, to me, it sounded like it was basically like if you had, if you showed up to play somewhere, you were like, yeah, come down and do this thing. And you showed up to play trumpet and somebody, and they were just like, yeah, we, we weren't able to get the trumpet, but we have this saxophone. Yeah, uh, just played on this. <laughs> we have this violin. Just do this. It was, it was kind of it's all the same. Kind of, it's a real challenge yeah. for him. Yeah. Well, guys, awesome. thanks so much for uh, joining us. It was cool to hear some history that I didn't know. You know, um, this seven inches, it, it's always been kind of a mystery to me because it is so different, you know, from the rest of the Revelation catalog. And um, I'm super stoked to talk about manic compression in what a couple a year, years. Probably. Yeah, a couple <laughs> years. Probably about so. a year. Yeah. So, uh, Alan, thank you so much for joining us on this. That Walter, as always, um, hope we get to talk to you guys or see you guys, you know, before we, we get to talk again. And um, let us know if you need anything. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, right guys. On. Really appreciate it. Quicksand 7-inch. Um, I always thought that this was like a demo of the band, kind of. You know what I mean? I, and it is, really. It's recorded at Demo Demo Studios with Don Fury. But if you, if you listen to it in the context of the rest of the Quicksand records, it does sound like demo, demo quality, demo versions, especially with the next step being Slip, which is such an incredible record. Even if I desert don't, island, that's a desert island disc. Well, I'm I agree. I, I'm team. Uh, 
Manic compression. Manic compression. I know. I am. Yeah. The I, first manic compression was my introduction to quicksand, but, um, you know, it was brand new. So that was the one I got, mm-hmm. but, uh, slip for me is just perfect. And, uh, like I would, it's one of the greatest records ever, but I, think so I, I agree with you. This is a very, and I love the seven inch. I don't want that to be lost in the, in the sauce here, but it definitely sounds like sort of like a precursor of what was to come. Mm-hmm. It's really stripped down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, even though it doesn't really sound like anything else, I don't think like you can't, it, it doesn't sound derivative to, of anything, but it just sounds like, like just starting out before mm-hmm. they necessarily fully fine tune their sound sound. But I don't want it to seem like I'm belittling the record, but it's just slip is just so freaking good. Yeah. That it's like, they just, everything on slip, I think was just a step up because as, as, um, you know, I may have mentioned, uh, I like, I like the versions of unfulfilled and omission more on slip. Of course. Yeah. And on here. Yeah. I, you know, in listening to this, this week, I caught some stuff that I thought sounded like the into another self-titled also. And I love that record. And so it's, it, it makes sense. Like it kind of all came from the same scene. You know, it was a bunch of dudes that were exploring music and pushing their, you know, they were expanding their repertoire and it wasn't just youth crew anymore. It wasn't just New York hardcore anymore. It was like, they were fucking trying to take things to the next level. All about. Well, it's, you know, I'm reading right now. Um, after we did the Fugazi challenge, I went down like a giant DC rabbit hole. Because uh-huh. again, that was like my intro to hardcore anyway. So it was sort of like reignited that flame. And I'm reading the book Dance of Days. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's by Mark Anderson. And uh, I want to say the other uh, author is Mark Jenkins. I apologize if I'm wrong. I don't have the book. But they're talking a lot about, you know, it goes through the history of DC. And in a lot of ways... I feel like that history is mirrored with, with, you know, and especially if you think about discord with Rev, you know, sure. you look at like the early period and then now quicksand into another super touch Far um, side. inside out, even yeah. all those bands are more like the revolution summer. Like this was like the sea change mm, in, this in is the, sea. the New York hardcore revolution summer. Yeah. And, and that's, wow. that's kind of, what I summer see. of 91 summer of 1990 yeah so to me like wow. quicksand have a dc feel to them in spirit not necessarily in sound like i know they used to get compared to fugazi in the early days and i don't really Who hear did? it quicksand no i don't hear it they, at yeah, all they were, yeah they were they like in fact in the um in the antimatter interview bitipo to norman brannan mm-hmm. uh with alan cage uh, they address like I guess they got a bad review for Slip in Alternative Press, and they called them Fugazers, saying that like they basically just sound like Fugazi and Shoegaze. But I just I don't I don't really hear it. But I, no. I said the spirit um, of of that scene is apparent in all this stuff, and I think that's yeah. honestly why I love it so much. Hey, you can see it in the live videos also. Yes, Walter singing is that that kind of dc feel i think he's he's trying to dial into and, and he does hey that's all i got revelation summer 
Yo, <laughs> you coined it. You coined it right now. Uh, you know, I just waited so many minutes to be able to say that out loud. <laughs> but, but think about it. Think yeah. about it. The whole, you know, like when, when we talk to um, Norman, and I know I've seen him say before, the real kickoff was that of 90s hardcore. That tour. That, anth- that Anthrax show was the start yes. of that tour with Quicksand into an, or not Quicksand, Quicksand Inside, inside Out. out. And shelter. shelter, shelter, yes, and that could have been Revelation Summer. Revelation Summer, you heard wow. it here first. Great, TM Revelation Summer, TM. You know what? I think one of my first exposures to Quicksand, honestly, was MTV because they had several music videos. Um, you know, the video for Freezing Process um, really like stuck out in my head. And of course, as a young, I was still in high school, teenager and exploring this stuff. And I knew what Revelation Records was. I knew what Shelter was. And so I was like, oh, here's this other, you know, band that's affiliated with Revelation. And so I bought Slip on CD at a place called Moby Disc in Costa Mesa. And um, I remember (laughs) how literally how physically heavy the the slip cd was for some reason like it's like thicker plastic and like the everything about the cd if you if you compare it i i I don't know it it was and and i was like okay well this is the cd itself is heavier so that means the band has got to be heavier too and um so i don't honestly i don't think did quicksand play the first warp tour yeah 95 so I believe they were a headliner, if I'm not mistaken. So I probably saw them at that. And then uh, this is like a real rough um, admission. I didn't see them at Rev 25. I think because Glasshouse is like an hour away from me. And it was what, like four nights. And I kind of had to pick and choose what I was going to because of, you know, kids and work and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, man, so, I've been yeah. there. I've Fair. been there too. Uh I knew so I missed the quicksand one and I'm I'm not sure when the next time I saw them was, but I saw them when they were a three piece um with glass jaw at the uh observatory in Orange County. And what a gig, man. Quicksand and glass jaw together. Two like Glassjaw is one of my favorite bands in the world. And I just plopped myself right on the barricade in front of the stage and just fucking sang every word to every song for like two hours. It was nice. so good. Yeah, Quicksand's one of those bands too, I think, where I find myself listening to them a lot and a lot more than I think I do. You know what I mean? Like I just find, and, and I think it's because you can kind of put them on for any mood. Like if I'm still in the mood for hardcore with some groove, like Slip and Manic Compression and this record especially all have that feel. But also if I'm in the mood for like, you know, like Revolution Summer kind of stuff or, you know, something a little more uh, mid-tempo, Quicksand has that too. Uh, they're just, they're just, they're great. I'm excited that we'll get to talk about Manic Compression because yes. Rev did the vinyl. Oh, I only wish awesome. that, I only wish that they did the vinyl for Slip too, but. Yeah. Yeah. Can they do it still? Uh, who knows? I, you man. know what? Maybe, 
Who knows? Maybe we'll find yeah. out. Yeah. It's a great record. It's one of my top 10 records. Mm. For some reason, Slip was just a huge record in my high school. Mm. I don't know if you, if you have records like that where they just like, caught on. Like a, a, a lot of people like Slip? Yes. A lot wow. of people like Slip and a lot of people like Four Walls Falling. Interesting. Well, Four Walls Falling for you, I get, because like it was a local-ish. Your, your area. Yeah. Like my school, everyone loved Frail, but that's because uh-huh. okay. my school, fun. everyone loved Sensefield. Okay. Like, like even like randos and like cheerleaders. That's and what I'm normies. saying. Everyone yeah. liked it. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm trying to think if we had, if we had something like that. Yeah. And you know who I uh, blame for our school liking Sensefield is Steve Aoki. Oh, okay. He was friends with uh, Steve Aoki was on the football team in our freshman year. And uh, so he became friends with all of those kids and, you know, grew up in the neighborhood with everyone and hung out with the cheerleaders. Both of us did. And so, you know, it just kind of caught on. So Killed for Less was like a real soundtrack to our teenage years. Did you see them? Did you see their set at Rev 25? Um, At Rev 25? Yeah, the yeah. one that I flew out for. 20, no, that I was their it. last show. No, it was really good, wasn't it? No. Or one of them? I heard, I heard that there's people that said they stole the the show. They did. They mm. did. It was really good. Like because it was just so like I guess people. I love Sensefield. I don't want this. We're talking supposed to be talking about quicksand. Sure. But when we get yeah. to Sensefield, that's gonna be another one that I just I especially the I love building. But yeah, I can't think of. I, I guess in my high school, maybe the Texas is the reason album was like okay. one of those where like a lot of people from all walks of life, Doug. Also, it's sick that, that you mentioned Frail in, <laughs> in that. Uh, uh, I, it, our um, friend of the pod, Andrew Rysick, the other day, was he messaged me and said that he was stoked that we talked about Gravity Records the other yeah. day. And, you know, I, one thing that I would, I think is a strength of this podcast is none of us are experts in anything. No. But we have... We're fucking nerds, and yeah, we have we, taken, we, we've taken it upon ourselves to at least know about a lot of this stuff in the subculture. Like, uh, anything from the 90s, any of those record labels, like, I'm not trying to say I'm fucking Captain Hardcore here or trying to toot my own horn, but at least I knew about a lot of these record labels and a lot of these bands. Like, I, I, I love zines also. I don't buy zines anymore really but in the 90s i went to vinyl solution and i fucking bought like anything and i and i have a fucking tote in the garage to keep them all airtight and you know uh, me and little chris a couple years ago went through and just sat in my garage and just read zines all day yeah they're and, um, i love them you know it's funny like frail i was thinking about recently and i know we're going a bit off topic but whatever but I was thinking about how influential they were to me. Um, and there was a period of time, I think, after I got into like the straight up youth crewy stuff where I was kind of like, oh, screw this stuff. Like this like whiny, you know, like I, I was like, ah, it didn't hold up, blah, blah, blah. And now going back with clear vision, I realized one, how the, the music, it actually did hold up. I listened to the discography and I was like, oh, this is, this is cool. It, it takes me back to that time, but also how important Frail was. Um, and I think specifically Don DeVore. Yeah. But, but I mean, to me, they were the, they were, the, that was the first local band I saw that wasn't, you know, I saw Fugazi, but to me, Fugazi may as well have been 
like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. They were like rocks, you know, even though we know Fugazi's not like, like they were like rock stars. Like this, mm-hmm. just the idea of them being in my town was crazy. But Frail was like the first band where I saw him like, oh, there's like all other kids here. Mm-hmm. These are kids from my high school. They're playing. And it set the course for the next, you know, 25 years of my life. And uh, I'm just super thankful for Frail for that. And I hope that uh, someone does a discography on vinyl. Yeah, that discography CD, it's cool. I think it's on Bloodlink, right? Yeah. And it, it has like a booklet in it. And I mean, they had a lot of weird releases, a lot of splits and stuff like that. And very minimal. Uh, I think one of the seven inches literally is like a big hole in the middle of the seven inch with no nothing written Ooh, on the labels. Yeah. It might have been. And they had like, you know, the one was in like a manila envelope, uh-huh. like very 90s. But yeah. now I realize just how important all that stuff was to like the views i have today yeah Yeah. literally were shaped like then so yeah when i got until you know and i fucking love floor punch and you know all that stuff when i got into that i kind of left a lot of that abolition scene behind which Mm -hmm. yes it included frail Mm -hmm. um but in later years i realized that i can have i can have both like both are yeah are awesome can i tell a sad story yeah sure so Quicksand played with Clutch at the old 930 Club with Munster Magnet. I loved Clutch's first LP, and I went to go see the show. I broke my foot the week of. I still went to the show on crutches. I tried to trooper through. I tried to make it. I saw Clutch. I didn't see Quicksand. Mm. On the slip tour. Oh. Yeah. And that was, I guess, 93? Yeah. Saw him again with Siv for the first time. Uh-huh. Oh, so great. that was 95 or whatever. Yeah. But still would have been awesome to see. Yeah, it still would have been awesome if I was there to see that. And I was. I just didn't stay for the whole show. Yeah. That's okay. It happens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to kind of wrap this all up, Jason pointed out that there is a quicksand mini documentary on YouTube. Yeah. It is very it looks old. I think it might be on the come join friends YouTube channel, which is run by Brian Balchek, who was in 1134 and ignite. And also in the reformed version of into another. Yes. And um, it's worth checking out. It's like an hour long. Joe Nelson. Yeah. It looks uh, like someone just walked around with like one of those big camcorders that fit on your shoulder and just like taped his friends a bunch like backstage, yeah. you know, it's, it's very, ve- it's raw. very, but it's very nineties. And yeah. there's rage. There's a, it was the tour with rage against the machine, uh-huh. which is cool. Yeah. So um, yeah, we'll be posting this stuff. Maybe we'll post it on Facebook and discord. Like, uh, you know, a lot of these links and um, I have also, I think that I have a quicksand soundboard recording from 1995 that'll drop somewhere maybe. Awesome. And uh, you, so uh, make sure you check us out uh, where it went podcast.com and we will see you next time. Bit of later.
What's up, everybody? This is Javier from the Where When Podcast. You just heard an exclusive premiere of a track called Only In Name by Northeast Ohio's post-hardcore heavyweights Honeymoon. This song and one other track will be released on a limited six-inch lathe cut available for pre-order now. These tracks are just a tease of what's to come from Honeymoon in the upcoming year, and it's also a celebration of their one-year anniversary of their debut LP, From the Future, also available on Head to Wall Records. If I were you, I would go over to Head to Wall on Bandcamp and order this and an exclusive new t-shirt right fucking now. Bit at Bo, Nate, and Head to Wall Records. And while I have you all here, I just want to give a huge bit at Bo to our top tier uh, fans on Patreon. Uh, Billy Tunnell, Brandon Gavell, Brooklyn, Cesar Falcon, Chad Keplinger, David Palmer, Dirk Focused, Ed Goodlife, Greg Jackson, John Cowell, Quiet Keith, Nate of Head to Wall fame, O'Neill, the horse fucker, Siren Records, Rob Moran, Tim Shear, and Mike the Mosher. Check us out on www.whereitwentpodcast.com for more info. We'll see you next time. Bit it bow!